2007, Telus Publishing released The Target Book, which drew a great acclaim and is considered the definitive history on the much-loved Target Book range. To celebrate the release of a new edition, and of course to loosely tie back to our popular Stay On Target and Reference Books podcasts, Mark and I are delighted to have as our special guest this episode, the author of The Target Book, David J. Howe. David, welcome. Hello, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Pleasure. How are you going? I'm very well. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in England, so it's early morning. Um, you know, the birds are singing. I've just had breakfast. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm doing very well, thank you. So, David, we might as well get uh, get stuck in. Uh, the, one of the questions <laughs> we ask all our guests is uh, when did they, um, or when did you, become a fan of the show? When did you move from being a mere viewer to being a fan of Doctor Who? Oh, that's a difficult question. I'm not sure I ever was just a mere viewer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult one. Because I'm in the UK, um, I've obviously watched Doctor Who like as it was transmitted. Um, and I've often had uh, very kind of interesting conversations with friends from America, Australia, New Zealand, you know, around the world, um, of the different ways in which people kind of come to and enjoy and watch Doctor Who. So for me, Doctor Who has always been a very linear sequence of stories, adventures, episodes, usually with a week apart, because, you know, I watched them as they were transmitted. So there's a very strong sense of, you know, progression and of doctors and of stories and of order to them in my mind and, and in my fandom. Whereas, of course, people that came to the show in other countries didn't get that, you know. So they were repeated like ad hoc on um, American television. So you could watch kind of like Tom Baker stories like every other day or every day until they were coming out your ears kind of thing, you know. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I suspect it was similar in Australia with lots of repeats and, you know, all feed of John Pertwee and Tom Baker all muddled up and jumbled up together and so on and so on. And, and then, of course, from uh, in the 80s onwards, we had that the videos started to come out. So, of course, you could access them in any order as well. So I, th I think there's a different experience to people in different countries and different provinces in, in the way they um, absorb, come to, enjoy, become a fan of Doctor Who. So for me, I, I started watching it back in the 60s. My earliest memory is from Evil of the Daleks, I think, where I can remember the Doctor sort of looking down over the Dalek city as it explodes at the end and sort of saying the final end. And I've got memories of that. I've got I've got memories of uh, Maxtable and Waterfield, and I think the archway that that Dalekizes them. I think that might be episode six, five, six, something like that. Uh, so I've got all sorts of memories of that. And then I remember Tomb of the Cybermen, and I remember Gunk spilling out of Cybermen chest units and, and that fun stuff. And then it kind of continues on really. And I, and I remember not being allowed to watch things like the Ice Warriors because they were too scary. I remember bits of Fury from the Deep. I remember bits of Mind Robber Invasion. I have strong memories of hiding behind the sofa as a side memory in the sewers. So all of this was kind of, you know, I suppose setting me a, a, as a fan. So I was kind of like really enjoying it, really looking forward to it, not being allowed to watch it. And then a lot of my memories in the early 70s, strangely, are, are based around when I couldn't see Doctor Who. I remember missing the Damons because we were on holiday in Wales and Doctor Who wasn't shown at the same time in Wales as it was in England. And of course, at the holiday camp, they didn't have a television. So I remember missing that one. I remember... Um, the Sea Devils, it was the first time my parents got colour television. So The Sea Devils was the first story I saw in colour. Um, and then we have Curse of Peladon, I remember. Um, and all of these things are kind of like I remember. But I suppose if you really want to put your finger on, you know, when did the fandom start? It was when um, Piccolo released the little uh, Making of Doctor Who book. Hmm. Uh, the Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dick's original version with the, the photo from The Sea Devils on the front. 
Um, so I found that book. I can't remember how or why or when I got it. It was at the time. It was 72. And my original copy of it is annotated in pencil um, with all of the following adventures. So I continued the little chart they had in there of, of the monsters and the, the stories and all the stuff. And that was the first time that I kind of really became aware that there was a history to the show, that there was a lot more stories than I could rem even remember watching. Um, and I really started to get into it. And it was about that time as well, of course, uh, well, the year later, 73, that the Target book started. And so my first Target book was Curse of Peladon, um, which I'd remembered seeing the year or two before. Um, and I then went back and collected all the earlier ones and then collected them going forward. So again, my fandom kind of started with um, with the Target books in, in a way and in uh, the principle of not throwing things away. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was the time when I started. I said, I've still got my first Piccolo making of Doctor Who. I've still got the original Target books I bought. And then, of course, I started to pick up toys and I started to cut press cuttings out of the Radio Times. And again, I've still got all of these things because I basically stopped throwing things away. So if, if the point at which you become a fan is the point at which you stop throwing things away, <laughs> then it, it, it would have been sometime around 73, 74 that I started to really become a fan of the show. And obviously I've watched it ever since. So it's my entire life I've watched Doctor Who. <laughs> For those who couldn't watch an episode or missed an episode or a story as you did, the target novelizations uh, were for many people uh, the only chance at that time to see a missed story, weren't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, I, I remember going back and uh, and reading things like A Doctor and the Cybermen, which was, of course, in the Moonbase adventure and absolutely, you know, loving it and the Ice Warriors and uh, and all of those kind of good like Troutons that were coming out um, in the 70s absolutely loved them because there was no other way of understanding or getting the plots or in inverted commas seeing those adventures or accessing them so yeah they, they were absolutely brilliant and i think even even at that time even at that sort of tender age um it was the novelizations that had the more work put into them the expansion the the details that weren't on television that were the better read because obviously a, a novel is meant to be read and kind of read and seen in your head as it were in your imagination so that the more that the author can put in to allow that to happen, the better the reading experience is going to be. So yeah, no, they were absolutely fantastic at the time for reliving, enjoying, you know, understanding, accessing kind of some of these adventures that the Doctor had had that, that we couldn't watch anymore. My memory of, of reading the Target books is the earlier ones met what that criteria that you spoke of just before. Yeah. And there appeared to have been a long fellow period where Terence Dix was contributing to his tax debt. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a <laughs> towards the end, um, there was that real effort to actually sort of make them feel like a novel, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in a way, I think the books became a, a victim of their own success. In the early days, nobody had any expectations that this range of books was going to last. You know, there was something that the publishers had picked up at a book fair. The three hardbacks from the 60s had kind of laid fallow uh, for some time. You know, yeah, there were paperbacks back in the 60s as well, but, you know, nothing had really been done with them for years. So no one had any expectations about this. I mean, Doctor Who itself was going through, obviously, the Pertwee years, and it was another period of, you know, invention and experimentation all set on Earth. And, you know, again, very different from what had gone before. Now, as I said, there was any real expectation that these things would do as well as they did. And so that uh, the writers that were writing them were, were just, you know, generally speaking, they were novelizing their own scripts. So you had Matt Hulk, Brian Hales, um, Barry Letts, etc. Um, and of course, Terence um, novelizing their own scripts and, um, and they're sort of doing to them what they saw their stories as being in their own minds, as it were. So when you're a writer and you write a script, you have a vision in your head as to what, what that thing is going to look like. 
And then, of course, that gets translated through directors and script editors and, you know, production designers and effects men and actors into what you see on screen. And, of course, it very often isn't quite what, what the author originally wanted. It doesn't mean to say it's no good. In often it's better, but it's perhaps not what the author intended. So when you get the author writing the, uh, the actual novelization, you tend to get a little glimpse as to what perhaps they thought um, this thing was going to look like. Um, particularly so again back then in that um, there wasn't really the visual element for them to draw on. They could certainly draw on the actual scripts so that the physical scripts could be used, um, but the visual element perhaps wasn't available to them. Um, in some cases it was. I, I do know that um, Terence, as he was working in the production office, of course had access to viewing things at the BBC, and I, I think I'm right in saying that they had a viewing room and you could call up kind of old tapes of things to sit and go and watch but of course you, you couldn't take them home you, you know you couldn't have them on a vhs to sort of watch over and over again and really get to grips with you could just watch them once make some notes and away you go and write novelization kind of thing so i think yeah in the early days there was that and then when the books became just so vastly successful um from a publishing perspective of course the pressure comes on is we want more we want more we want more you know we've got 150 whatever it is of these stories that we could novelize you know why aren't we doing more why aren't we doing more and so you end up with this insane monthly schedule where poor terence you know partly through his own volition because he realized you know it was a good way to you know earn a lot of money as it were um was doing all of them uh, and of course if you're having to write a book a month there's only so much time and effort you can put into it mm. so you really do end up with a slightly more basic kind of novelization where it really is just the script, that's it, that's the story, that's what we saw, that's what you get on the page. And I know Terence was very keen that that was actually what he wanted to do. Um, the fans liked the fact that it was a fairly accurate retelling of the story that we saw um, with no bells and whistles. And as I said, I think it was both of those things, the fact that there was such a demand for them, that they wanted to do them one a month, that basically it's hard to, to write, you know, like a... <laughs> 500 page novel in a month kind of thing you couldn't do more and then as the range kind of moved from editor to editor um the other thing to bear in mind of course changing the subject slightly is that at the publishing house um when terence was writing the majority of them um the editor at the time whose name escapes me christine donaher i think um she wasn't a massive doctor who fan she really didn't get what this was all about and so she was quite happy to leave it to Terence to deal with it all. So, of course, you don't really have any then direction from the publishing house. So Terence was writing a book a month. Thank you very much. Fine. Brilliant. Bang, 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 bang. There we go. When Christine moved on, and I think it was Nigel Robinson ended up in the chair, Nigel was a massive Doctor Who fan. And Nigel, of course, realised that there was a lot of Hartnell and, and Troughton, indeed, and indeed Pertwee stories that hadn't been novelised yet, and where the original authors were still alive. And so maybe they could be asked to do these and Terence wouldn't have to actually do every single one of them. Um, and so, of course, that's what Nigel did, because if you've got a different author working on every book one a month, then, you know, they can take longer than a month to write them. <laughs> and therefore you end up with a better book. It's not rocket science in that respect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I think that's what happened, really. And it was, it was just like the arc that the books take, that they became a victim of their own success the, the editor was very busy on other things. Terence was doing them all. You can't put detail into the books if you write them one a month. And then as the range progressed and Nigel took over, then they got more authors in. So therefore, the quality of them and the, and the detail in them could kind of be improved. And, and so the whole thing, um, you know, 
went back almost to the way it was at the beginning with, with a lot more detail in the books and a lot more interest in them. Um, but none of this is to denigrate Terence because I, I think, you know, Terence got a generation of kids reading and that is no mean feat. Uh, you know, his books are amazing. Uh, I'm rereading a lot of them for the audio range because I do I do the liner notes for the, uh, the the BBC audios that they do of the of the novelizations, and so as I'm rereading the books, I, I'm I'm sort of almost rediscovering them, and and all of them have got some great words, some great bits and pieces in them, you know, Terence's and you know, Martyrs, and you know, all the authors that are contributing to them, you know, really did a fantastic job in in documenting the series for a generation that couldn't sit and watch it when they wanted to. And the other striking feature about the books, and it's one of the hallmarks of the Target book, are the covers themselves. I've been paging oh, yeah. through paging through my copy of the Target book and I'm looking at, at the cover for the Planet of the Spiders. Uh, the, the covers were, I think, instrumental in searing into the minds of a lot of the readers, um, you know, memories of the stories and memories of the books. And, of course, Chris Achilleos is probably one of those uh, illustrators, or uh, especially with his, uh, I think it's the cover for the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, where the pterodactyl is going clack. They're very much a calling card of the Target series, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the covers were what I think drew a lot of people to the books in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and, and Chris Achilleos, he managed to somehow uh, sort of capture the essence of the of the stories in, in a... I'll use some relatively simple um, pictures. I mean, again, I'm looking at them myself. I mean, each each image, more or less, has got three elements to it. Mm. Um, and, and, in, and in kind of different combinations of the Doctor's face with a character and a monster or, or two monsters, it, it manages to sort of sum up the, um, the, the essence of the stories. And I think they're absolutely brilliant. And, and the design of the books, the, the, the logo, the, the white background, the way that it worked in the early days was really perfect in in establishing the range of books, um, and it certainly was something that um, Target from the publishers was doing. I mean, again, in the Target book, we have um, some covers of some Agiton Sachs novels, yes. which use very very similar idea of white background, strong logo, and a kind of like an image to to kind of like establish the range. Um, so it's it's a it's a format that worked well for them. And, uh, and you can see that through the development of the cover designs. And as you said, that the infamous clack one of, of <laughs> Dinosaur Invasion, uh, where, where Chris Achilleos decided to put lettering on the cover as well. Um, no, absolutely brilliant stuff. I'm just wondering, uh, would today, with our reliance on computer software to you know, design, et cetera, et cetera, would we be able to do anything as striking as what they were managing in the 70s? Um, I think there is the possibilities there. Uh, I mean, obviously, today it's a very, very different world. And because publishing is very much driven by cost and, and how much money the publishers can make, publishers are reluctant to spend too much money on the covers. And, of course, it's unfortunately always cheaper to hire someone to do some Photoshop work than it is to hire an original artist to come up with a painting. And that's why a lot of the artists have had to reinvent themselves as digital artists simply to be able to keep up with the trend that um, there isn't as much money around, you're not going to be as paid as much for your work, therefore you can't spend as much time on it as perhaps you used to. The sad facts of life. So I think, you know, design has nothing to do with cost. You know, design is to do with imagination and skill and talent of the designer and the inspiration to be able to come up with something that's that's eye-catching and, you know, and works in terms of, uh, of a design for a cover. The way in which you execute that cover is, is more to do with, um, you know, the, the techniques and the costs and, and, 
and, and how that's actually going to be paid for. It's, it's just the mechanics of the industry, unfortunately. Is that also in part to do with the rise of self-publishing? I was looking at a website yesterday that has ready-made covers for all sorts of genre-related uh, books. So if you're a person who's keen on publishing their own writing, you can go and look up uh, this, uh, you know, websites that have ready-made covers. They, the, the prices that I was seeing were sort of ranging from you know, 25 to, to 50 pounds, and you could get yourself you know, a, a photoshopped cover that was ready to go without having to actually deal with a, an illustrator. I, I mean, I think that's all part of it. I mean, you know, it's w wherever there is a demand, there will be somebody who comes up with an idea to fill that demand. And um, with Amazon, uh, you know, and Lulu and places like that promoting, you know, publish your own books, it's simple, easy, cheap. Yeah, people are going to need covers. And so if there's a demand for covers, then there'll be people that will want to provide those sorts of services and provide those covers. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all, you know. And again, it's kind of devalues it, perhaps. But it's, I don't know, it's very interesting, very interesting. I mean, there's always been um, art agencies. Uh, I mean, Young Artist is one that springs to mind that I think Chris Achilleos was actually with um, for a time, where, you know, a publisher would deal with the agency and the agency would then supply cover artwork for whatever it is that they wanted. You know, and obviously they've got a deal going on there um, and it works. I mean, it's actually happening today. I mean, I noticed I got a copy of a book the other day, the new one by um, Jenny Colgan, brand new hard, Doctor Hardback, and I noticed the cover's done by an agency. So, you know, BBC Books Today are using an agency to basically come up with the, the Photoshop cover for them. You know, there's no names on it. I don't know who did the cover. It's just the agency. <laughs> so as I say, it's like these things exist all over the place. It's, it's not a new concept. Um, and it's not something that's necessarily bad either. It, it's just, you know, horses for courses. You know, you want a cheap cover? There you go. You can go and buy one off the internet. But then isn't that, isn't that the way of the world these days? If you want a cheap anything, you can go and buy it off the internet. <laughs> that's right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Going back to the other, the 80s covers where they dropped the artistic ones and went for the photograph uh, covers, what was the main reason for that? I think I'm right in saying, I'm just scrolling through my target book here just to get to the photo covers. Ones like uh, Arkham Infinity, it's, I mean, they're bloody awful, to be honest. Yeah, Time Flight, uh, uh, Visitation, I think, is the first one. Yeah, I think I it think was. Visitation was the first one. I think what it was, was this was the combination where... Again, because the Doctor Who books became so successful, the BBC and the actors who were appearing in Doctor Who hmm. started to kind of look at them and go, well, where's my cut? You know, there's my picture on the cover of this book and I'm not seeing any money from it. So what's that all about? So you, you started to get to a position where the actors and the actors' agents were kind of petitioning the BBC and saying, this isn't fair, you know, uh, Peter Davison, my client, he's, he's the doctor, he's on the cover of all of these books and yet he's not seeing a penny from these books being published. So I think what happened was that the agents cannily turned around and says, well, we, don't, we won't allow you to use an artwork rendition. Um, we want you to use a photograph, knowing full well that if they used a photograph, then the artist would be paid. And I think that's sim simply that. It was simply that the cost element, that um, because it started with Davison, and you probably notice as well that there was this element that the book stopped having the, any but the current doctor on the front. Yes. And again, I think, I think this was part of it that, they wanted to emphasise who the current Doctor was. They didn't want readers to be distracted in their minds by having other Doctors on the covers, which I think is nonsense. I mean, you know, you should be able to figure it out. And so, uh, you know, you, you start to get to this position where, well, no, we want a photo of the current Doctor on the front because that further establishes the brand and stuff. Um, I think that's really what it was all about. Um, but unfortunately, I think everyone agrees the photo colours were uniformly dreadful. And so, you know, it was great news when they went back to artwork again. Um, and I'm just again looking and I can see that, you know, we had a run of uh, a run of photographic covers 
Um, Meglos was artwork. Castrovel, Forty Dooms, Earthshock, Terminus, Infinity, and then Five Doctors, which of course was artwork. Mordrin, Kinder, and then of course back to artwork for Snake Dance, and then Enlightenment, Dominators, Warriors, which were tremendous um, Andrew Skeletor paintings. Yes. So yes. Um, interesting stuff. <laughs> I mean, the covers themselves are works of art, aren't they, really? Oh, absolutely. I love, I love the cover art. I mean, I've, I've always had a passion for the cover art. I, I think they're beautiful paintings. I think they're great renditions of, you know, key scenes, monsters, elements um, from the, the Doctor Who stories. Uh, no, they're tremendous, tremendous things. David, we might as well talk about the genesis of uh, the book itself. Um, I, don't, I don't remember that story. Genesis of the Target book. <laughs> <laughs> cover, cover by Chris Achilleos. Yeah. Of course. The book began uh, originally as a series of articles in DWM. Is that correct? That's right, yes. It was something that I'd always wanted to, to do, was to actually delve into the history of the books and how did they come to be and, and what was the background to them and all of that kind of thing. And I, I just, I can't remember under what circumstances it came up. I obviously pitched it, I think, to whoever the editor was. Um, I said, it might have been John, it might have been Clayton, I'm, perhaps I'm losing my order of Doctor Who Monthly editors. I'm, I can't remember. The introduction says it was Gary Gallat or Gillette. Was it Gary? Ah, right, it was Gary Gillette. Okay. Um, so I, I must have approached Gary with, with the idea of doing it, and Gary obviously thought it was a good idea. And so, um, yeah, Doctor Who magazine commissioned me to do this, this series of articles on the, um, on the, 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 the target range, as it were. Mm. Um, and so I, I kind of then set to trying to track down as many people as I could, trying to talk to as many people as I could, um, and basically using exactly the same principles that um, Steve Walker and Mark Stammers and myself had used when we did the 60s, 70s, 80s and the handbooks. Um, for Virgin all, all those many years ago, which was try very hard not to rely on secondary research. So wherever you can, actually talk to the person yourself, do the interview yourself, yeah? Find mm -hmm. the, the newspaper cutting yourself, you know? Don't rely on a piece that somebody else wrote mm. in which they interviewed somebody or yep. found that press cutting. So try very hard to do the, the primary research because then you get the best book because you know that what you are writing is correct. So that's what I did. And, and so I, 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 I tracked down um, you know, Richard Henwood and all the early editors. Terence is an old friend of mine anyway, um, so Terence was more than happy to help uh, and, and put some stuff together. I'd known Mac Hulk back in the day as well. We were friends and um, used to do lots of, go around his place and have lots of chats and stuff. I had a lot of information anyway, because I'd, I'd been collecting all of the target covers. I had cover proofs. I had unused covers. I had documentation. I had all sorts of things um, that we could use um, to sort of to bolster this piece, the, 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 these articles. So, um, so I pulled all the articles together and, and realised it was going to take more than one issue. Um, and so Gary was obviously quite happy to let it run over three issues. Was it four? I can't remember. Um, and um, and so I, I think he also alternated them. I, th I think he, he, he it was in every other issue. I think the articles appeared. Um, so I did that. It was great fun. I, I found all the information. We wrote it all up. It, it was tremendous. So and that was the piece that went in. And of course, I was absolutely over the moon when I think the first issue, um, Gary used the, the, the Death to the Daleks, the Dalek yes. exploding cover um, on, on the cover of Doctor Who magazine, um, which was absolutely lovely because that's long been one of my favorite covers. And, um, and yeah, so it was really interesting getting to chat to all the people, collect all the knowledge, the information. Some people I couldn't track down. Some people I managed to get quite late. Uh, some people, of course, were no longer with us. So, um, yeah, no, really interesting little research project to try and 
get as much information as I possibly could together um, about the range and about um, what was happening and, and how, how it had all come to be. And of course, again, another part of it, or was that the target? No, I think that was the target book. I, I think that was the actual encounter to the book. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, no, and it seemed to be very well received as well. Um, you know, I can't remember. Was it voted the best article or something from that year? I can't remember. You know, they do their annual yeah, poll. Yeah. The readers kind of roasted it quite high anyway as, as one of their favourite pieces from the year. So that was pleasing as well. So, uh, yeah, it was good. And for those listeners who are diving through their DWM collection looking for the particular issues, they are issues 291, 93, 95, 97, 99 and 301. Though, of course, we urge you to go out and buy the Target book if you already haven't done so for the definitive versions. It ran for six issues. It's true. Yep, that's what it says in the introduction that I'm looking at here. So they're, they're, obviously you you found a mountain of information and synthesised that down into a series of articles. Yeah. Were, were half of them on the Virgin ones as well? Was it, was it that just the... That was just the target ones because I did a second set all on the Virgin New Adventures and Missing Adventures. Uh, may very well have been. It doesn't say in the intro, unfortunately. Oh, no, no. So. Okay, all right, no worries. So, so you've had, you've had um, you've written the articles um, and uh, they've obviously been very well received. Well received enough for you to revisit the topic later in the decade and and want to write a book. What was what spurred you to do that? Well, it was partly because I had the articles and I thought, well, I've got all of this stuff I've already written. You know, it's in Doctor Who magazine. Magazines are ephemeral by their very nature. Yes, we, we fans collect them and keep them, but, you know, generally speaking, they're ephemeral. I said, it would, I just thought to myself, it'd be great to just collect all this together into a book, um, and then I can actually also use a load of the stuff that we weren't able to put in Doctor Who magazine, because, of course, you're limited by space as to what you can print. So I thought, well, if we could pull this out to book book size, I can then use a lot more of the information. I've got all these... You know, some of the artists had sketches of, of unused covers and bits and bobs. It's fantastic. Um, I, I'd done a pile of research, I think, at the BBC as well through the, the Written Archives Centre. And in doing that, I think we were doing that for 60s, 70s and 80s, um, we found a whole load of, of photocopies of unused covers and ideas and things that people didn't know existed. I think some of them we managed to get in Doctor Who magazine, but there was still a whole pile more. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd just love to be able to do all of this. Plus, we could reprint all the covers. We could do, and, and and as I thought more about it, the more it seemed like an obvious thing to do was just to to pull all this together into a book, um, and to kind of try and then present it um, as a single book. And of course, the title of the book it, it just had to be. <laughs> it had to be the target book because we're, we're talking about the target books all the time. Mm. So it it had to be the target book. So that's how the book came about, really. It, it just seemed an obvious thing to do. I mean, I was running Telos Publishing. Uh, we had a printer in India that could do colour printing for us. So we knew the thing was kind of doable. I think Peter Darvel Evans, who was the editor at Virgin at the time, um, he was very, very helpful and allowed me access to Virgin's files. So I was able to basically go back through all the book files that Virgin and WH Allen had to again collect more information and more bits and bobs and sort of additional stuff that we could try and include in the book. Um, and the whole thing just sort of came together. I mean, it, it took a long time. I think it took about a year to, to get it all together and, and to make it all work. Uh, and, of course, I have to give kudos to Arnold Blumberg, who did all the layout, because, again, with, with an illustrated book, the layout is so important. And I think Arnold did an amazing job in, in, in making it look as good as it looks um, and making it as attractive as it looks. So, yeah, and that was really what it was. It was just I've got all the writing, you know, I've got all this extra illustrative material. Let's just bring it all together and make a book of it. It is a beautiful looking book. I mean, I remember Thank when you. I received received my copy. I mean, short of 
you know, you hand stitching it together. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, lovely, a beautiful cover and the layout, as you say, um, it, it, yeah. make, it brings the material to life, doesn't it? I mean, you've got the pictures and you've got the words. It, yeah. If it was just slabs of text, uh, it'd yeah. be a killer to read. But uh, just the whole package does, I mean, justice to your research and justice so to the subject material. Yeah, and that, that was the whole point. And, and, and again, in the early parts of the book, I wanted to show sort of other covers. So I wanted to show some Agatha and Sachs. I wanted to show some of the other sorts of target books that, that they were publishing um, you know, and I think we do the similarly towards the end of the book where Nigel kind of almost revamped the target range and started to do other books under target mm. because in the middle it sort of just became Doctor Who for a long period um, and then it kind of went back to doing some other things. So I wanted to try and just encapsulate the whole thing. Um, one, one thing that I never got to do because to be honest with you I couldn't actually find the information was um, just for my own interest I would have loved to have pulled together a full list of every single target book not just Doctor Who, but all of them. So what was published which month? What was published in the target range? But basically, I couldn't find the information. I, I remember going to the British Library and pouring through old copies of um, bookseller and all sort of book publishing magazines and things, and, and I just couldn't find it. It just wasn't there. So um, we managed to find an incomplete set of WH Allen, Virgin, whatever, catalogues which kind of listed out a lot of the stuff that was being published. But even there, there are gaps of what came out when and where and why. And the other thing was, I had a thought at one point to include it perhaps at the back of the book as like another appendix of, of everything. But it would have been so long and would have taken up so many pages um, that I thought, well, to be honest with you, I'd rather print all the covers. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> fair enough. The book is actually itself as a labour of love. It shows through when you're reading it. And also with the interviews that you had with the editors in particular, their honesty about the range as well yeah. and their love for it really really shone through as well. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was a complete labour of love. Um, yeah. and, and I also particularly like that, you know, that, that when the Target book started, um, Richard Henwood was kind of the editor and it, and it was almost like a small press. It, it was like based in, in, you know, the front room of a shop in, <laughs> in kind of North London somewhere. Uh, it really was like a short press, the Universal Tandem Publishing Company, you know. Um, and I love that. I, I love that, you know, this, this book range has just gone on and on and on. Um, I also like the cyclical nature of it. Um, one of the things that I touch on in the new edition, in the, in the, in the, there's a new chapter at the end, or a new appendix at the end, rather, uh, where we discuss the, the current BBC reprints and stuff like that. You know, and I love that, you know, from Universal Tandem, you know, the books were passed to WH Allen, you know, were passed to Virgin, and then Virgin was bought by Ebury, and Ebury is now publishing BBC Doctor Who books. I love the cyclical nature of it, that it's almost all, it's, it's all come home. <laughs> yeah, circle of life, isn't it? Why are the BBC re-releasing the Target books and doing the audio readings? Why do you think that is? If you take the audios first, because they started first, mm -hmm. um, it's again, it's, it's all down to the popularity of the show. Michael Stevens, who's the, um, the producer-editor of the audio range, he, he's a massive fan of the show, um, and as indeed are lots of people that are currently working professionally on all sorts of different lines. And um, when he was working with BBC Audio, they were kind of touching on doing audios. They, they did, um, if you remember the little cassettes with John Pertwee read, was it Curse of Peladon? And yeah. uh, Peter Davison read something, and Colin Baker read Vengeance on Varos. And they did like cassette releases of these. And then as technology started to move into CD and MP3 and all of that kind of thing, we get the Doctor Who and the Daleks read by Ian Russell, uh, William Russell, which again, Michael kind of made happen. And that was really successful. So, of course, the BBC go, oh, let's have more of those then. And so Michael goes, all right, then. 
So he starts then commissioning, you know, other target books to be read, and they're all successful. And so the range eventually moves on to audio go, um, audio goes to start doing them once every two months or so. And, and now we're kind of down to sort of pretty much one a month because again, it's the same as the target books themselves. It's like you start with a few, they take off, everyone's happy, and you just do more and more and more. Um, and that's all because of Michael's love for the, um, the, the original novels and the cover art and, and everything and that goes into them. The BBC re-releasing the books, again, um, Arnold Petrillo, who's the managing editor at um, Ebury, massive fan of the Target books in the past, <laughs> you know, thinks, oh, I'm doing Doctor Who books. Oh, can we get these back into print? And, and for a long time, he was trying to work out how to do classic Doctor Who in print, you know, because they're doing all the books on the 10th, 11th, 12th, whatever book Doctors, yeah, and they're all doing very well. Um, but how can you do some of the earlier Doctors? How can you do some of the earlier stuff uh, and bring that back into print? And so, you know, they kind of dip their toe in the water a bit at the 50th anniversary. It was a good opportunity. Let's have a book per Doctor. Let's bring out a book per Doctor. So they did that. They did really well. So they thought, right, maybe we could do, you know, like six of the classic targets um, and use the original covers and do them as kind of like retro classics. Maybe that would work. So, again, that's what they did. They did really well, apparently, um, you know, exceeded everyone's expectations. So because all this is money orientated at the end of the day, BBC is fine. That did really well. Let's do some more. And so that's what's happened. And they've done what for the two series releases now. Um, the third one, I think, is imminent this Friday, isn't it? They come out. Uh, and, and that's what happens. You, you get fans in charge. Fans want to try and do stuff with the, the old stuff, try and get classics brought back. But they're battling against the, the guys that hold the purse strings because they need to see that these things are going to make money. Mm. So you have to almost wait for the right opportunity, wait for the right inspiration, the right way to do it, the right, the right kind of marketing to put behind it. Um, and then hopefully it will sell enough to allow you to continue to do more. And that's really what all this is all about, yeah? Yeah, because you're going to get collectors like me who are going to go out and buy them. But Absolutely. Also, but also you're going to get kids. Uh, we've got a friend of ours who runs a shop in Melbourne and he had a, came across a pile of Target books, put them in his shop for a couple of bucks and they were gone in a day. A lot of kids is buying them who hadn't been introduced to them and they loved them. They came back and said, have you got any more? Have you got any more? I so I think it's fantastic that they're... Uh, they're getting a new lease of life. I always think the bizarre thing, the, the thing that I find really bizarre, is that before before they were doing like the, the releases and stuff, I'd often thought, well, might should tell us, maybe we should approach the BBC and see, could we reprint them or something, you know? Mm. But there was always in the back of my mind, who on earth would buy reprints of these books when at any day of the week you can go onto eBay and find them for a sale for a penny each? Yeah. And that's still the case. You know, th these books are not rare. It, well, most of them aren't anyway. I mean, obviously, there's a, I think there's a handful that are really hard to find. Mm. But that's a handful out of 150. Yeah. Um, so you can buy them for a penny each. And yet the BBC is able to sell new copies of them in their thousands. It's really bizarre. Um, and good luck to them. <laughs> yeah. It's the hardback books that are getting the big prices on eBay. I mean, some of those titles are getting like 800, 900 pounds, I've seen. Are they actually selling? Some you are. always have to bear this in mind, is that yeah. you can look on eBay, on Amazon Marketplace, whatever you see. I mean, the Target book itself has been like a couple of thousand pounds, yeah? But I almost guarantee that nobody ever sells a copy at that price. Yeah. They may ask for that price, but do they ever sell? And I have to say, whenever I look on eBay at Doctor Who stuff, I see literally hundreds of items, mm. all with no bids whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. Wonder how much this is actually selling. 
It's a massive postage charge, uh, but not selling at all. So, yeah, David, what was the reaction to the first uh, the first edition when it came out? What the target book? Yes, it was absolutely brilliant. Everybody seemed to love it, and and I was really really pleased by that. Of course, yeah, I mean we sold really well. I think we went to two reprints um, with Telos um, using our printers in India. Um, we did two different limited edition hardback books. That I mean, the first hardback we did was a limited edition with a white cover, white leather cover, um, and that sold so quickly. Um, we were not expecting that to happen. You know, we could have doubled the print run and, you know, sold them all. Um, it sold out, I think, almost as soon as we, we got the books in. Uh, it was brilliant. And then the paperback just continued to sell and sell and sell until it sold out. So, you know, we were very, very pleased um, with that. Given that, what was the impetus behind doing a second uh, second edition then, the one that's about that. to be released? Well, what, what happened there was when the first edition uh, sold out, which I can't remember when it was, it must have been maybe around 20, 2009, 10, something like that, um, I really wanted to try and find a way to keep it in print. And uh, we, we looked into could we get it onto a print-on-demand system, You know, could we get it on Lulu or, or something, just so that people could continue to buy it. Um, but when we looked into it all, none of those systems would support the, the physical size that the book was. Um, so although obviously we had PDFs and all that kind of thing, and um, we couldn't find a POD system that would take it, very frustrating. So we just had to accept that it, it was out of print and we had to move on and do something else. Um, but then what happened this year, um, it was a whole load of things happened. Um, first of all, I was approached by the BBC um, because they knew that I had uh, original Doctor Who target artwork. And a guy at the BBC, Edward Russell, who's the brand manager at Cardiff, um, he'd long, again, another great fan of the range, he'd long wanted to do an exhibition of Target artwork. And um, with the BBC republishing some more of the old books, um, he thought this was a good opportunity to tie in with that and to do like an exhibition of Target artwork in London so people could come and see it. So um, he got in touch with me and um, sort of said, well, would I, would I let some of my pictures be on display and stuff? Um, but at that point, I, I could, couldn't actually, it sounds a bit brutal, but I couldn't actually see any benefit to me in lending my pictures. Um, they weren't, they weren't paying me anything. Mm. There was no, no reason for me to do it. I, I had no horse in the race at all. So I actually said, no, I, I declined. I said, well, I, you know, I'd rather not, you know, that there's always a risk of damage and, and so on and so on. So I'd rather not. Thanks. So obviously he was disappointed and, and he sort of said, well, you know, maybe the gallery could sell copies of your target book, you know, because it's a marvellous book, obviously not realising that it was long out of print. <laughs> um, so I, I was like, well, yeah, yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But we haven't got any copies. So, so I kind of declined. And I think that was, that was, uh, that was on, a, on a day in the week. And then I think either that afternoon or the next day, um, the printers that we use at Telos gave me a ring. We, we, we talk quite often, obviously, about things and what's happening and everything. And um, in the course of the conversation, I happened to mention that, oh, it's such a shame, you know, we've got this, this color book and we'd love to be able to reprint it, but, you know, we just can't, we can't afford it. And um, the lady from the printer said, well, hang on, um, we've just got a whole load of new color machines in at the printers. So and she said, why don't you send me the details and, and we'll have a look. So I thought, well, okay, nothing ventured. So um, we batted some figures and stuff around and it basically came out that we could actually afford to do a reprint that, you know, using the printers, using the new machines, um, we could actually do them for a cost that actually worked in terms of, you know, tell us not losing money um, when we sold the books. So I thought, oh, I can get the target book back into print. That's fantastic. Wow. Gosh. Um, so then Chris Achilleos phoned me 
Uh, and Chris said, oh, well, what's happening? You know, um, you know, are you going to let your, some of the pictures go to the thing and blah, blah, blah. So I explained to Chris. I said, well, no, not really. I haven't got a horse in the race. It's not. And Chris sort of said, oh, that's such a shame. You know, he said, oh, I'd love for you to be able to lend them and blah, blah, blah. So I said to Chris, look, you know, be because it's you asking me, I'll, I'll actually reconsider. You know, um, I don't like to let friends down and stuff, so I'll, I'll reconsider. So um, I thought to myself, well, if we can get the Target book out again, and if we can get copies into the gallery, I've got a horse in the race. You know, I, I actually then have some tangible benefit that I get from lending my artwork mm. to the exhibition. So I, I got back in touch with um, with Edward and I said, well, OK, not, no worries. You know, I've reconsidered. I've had a chat with Chris. You know, I'll let I'll let you use some of my artworks. And, and Edward was so pleased. He was like, you know, oh, my God, thank you so much. Because you know, it wouldn't be the same without them and blah, blah, blah. So, um, so that was very nice. And of course, then I had to in about a month this was i had to then turn around getting a new chapter written for the book and corrections done and all sorts of bits and bobs sourcing new pictures artworks book covers audio covers um i decided i wanted to do it the same way as we've done before so in the little, new little section at the back we've got little biogs of michael stevens and albert de patrillo and ben wilshire who did some of the artworks for the, the audios where they changed the artwork on the audio from the target cover um, so I did my best to kind of bring it completely up to date. And I, I talked to Albert and J Justin Richards and Michael. And, and so it's, it's, it's just, it's called legacy and it's, it's a similar style to the rest of the book, of course, but it just basically brings it up to date with what's been happening with audio, what's been happening at the BBC. Um, and so we managed to put all that stuff together about three weeks ago and then it went off to print. And as I said, we got copies last Friday. Yay. And it looks fab. So, uh, very, very happy. So some of my artwork is going to be at the exhibition in London, um, which is lovely, which is at the Cartoon Museum in Little Russell Street. And that opens, I think, this coming Thursday for two weeks. So people can go and for the first time see some of the original Target artwork, you know, on display, uh, which is fabulous. And copies of the book will be available there for to buy, um, which is lovely. And uh, and I hope everybody really enjoys it. And, and if it goes well, Ed was saying, well, we might do another one. We might do a bigger exhibition, you know, later on or something. Yeah. <laughs> i'm so sorry guys yeah it's it's a little bit more expensive isn't it for you guys to to pop into london slightly yes <laughs> maybe they could live stream it for us oh there's a thought <laughs> so that's what happened with the new the new edition really it was this this collision of circumstance that all ended with you know me being able to get the book out again um, which is lovely and uh you know and, and it seems to be selling very well again which i'm very pleased about so uh so yeah Great. With the original covers, uh, illustrations, and the paintings, do a lot of those exist still? Or quite a lot do. That there are some that are missing. Um, I think I'm writing saying that Edward had managed to track down about sixty six zero potentially for the exhibition. I think there might be a few more than that. So that we might there might be about eighty that exist, which is what roughly about half. Um, okay. if you, when you take it, when you take into account like the reprint covers and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I, I know that Alastair Pearson has, has, I think, still got most of his original artwork. But Alastair, unlike some of the other artists, he really doesn't want them to be displayed. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't like to sell them or let them go. So, um, so unfortunately, Alastair, you know, like I initially did myself, he has declined to take part in the exhibition. But again, that's his prerogative. You know, there's no problem with that. I mean, I suppose if you add in Alistair's, it might it might be up to 100. I don't know. But yeah, there are definitely some which do not exist, which have basically been lost in the mists of time. Um, part of the problem was that back in the 60s, sorry, back in the 70s, should I say, not 60s, back in the 70s, um, there was no obligation for publishers to return artwork to the artists. 
So when the artists did cover artwork, um, they would send the, the artwork in and they'd never get it back because mm. the, the publishers would just, would just keep it. And then, of course, as the publishers, in inverted commas, kept it, so it would get lost, stolen, thrown out in, a, in an office move. You know, all sorts of things could happen. And, um, and this is unfortunately what seems to have happened to, to some of the, you know, the, the earlier paintings and stuff like that. I mean, Chris kept all of his. I think Jeff Cummins kept all of his. Um, some of the ones that are missing are some of the slightly more you know, unusual ones. Um, unfortunately, Peter Brooks uh, doesn't have any of his originals. None of those are known to exist, which is such a shame. And I think I'm right in saying that Peter Brooks is perhaps the only artist who does not have a known cover to exist. I think every other artist, yeah. one piece, I think I might be wrong on that because I'm I'm just looking at Mike Little and I'm I'm not sure that any of Mike Little's exist because Mike, Mike Little did like the Brain of Morbius, Planet of Evil, Deadly Assassin, Mask of Mandragora. So I'm not sure that any of those exist. Roy Knipes certainly did. Alan Hood's do. Uh, Roy Knipes do. John Geary's, there's one of his exists. Sorry, Andrew Skillis has obviously got his. David McAllister's ones do. Nick Spender's do. So I, th- I think, yeah, it, it may it may be just those two. It may be just Peter Brooks and Mike Little are the only two artists, who, none of whose artwork actually exists. Would it be fair to say, David, if anyone out there listening knows of uh, where some of these missing ones might be, to, they could drop you a line at Telos? That would be awesome, yeah. I mean, if people do know where these are, that, that would be absolutely brilliant on the off chance. Although there has been quite a lot of research done. I mean, I spoke to Peter Brooks myself, and he's no idea where his artwork went. Um, I think it all got chucked. Um, and I think there was another artist, I can't remember who, that we spoke to, um, and he'd had all of his original artwork and sketches and everything kept in drawers for like 30 years. And the year before, they'd had a bonfire. You know, <laughs> and you go, oh, no. Because <laughs> you thought, well, I've kept it for this long, but nobody's interested. I might as well just chuck it and free up my drawers for something else. What is it with Doctor Who and things getting junked and wiped and thrown out? What is it? I don't know. I know. What is that all about? <laughs> it's just, just crazy. Just speaking of research and records, what has the experience like being sort of going through the Written Archive Centre? For, for work on, on the Decades books and the ha- and, and the handbooks and, and the Target book. What's what's it like going down there and, and trawling through the written records of, of Doctor Who? It is very much like a treasure hunt because you never know what you're going to find. Um, and also, you, you don't actually know where to look. I mean, I know that may sound very strange, but the BBC archives, they've got files and all sorts of things. They have financial files. They have program files. They have general files. Um, they have files on all sorts of different things depending on you know, how they thought they would file things when stuff sort of came to them. So trying to, you know, locate stuff, it, it really is a little bit like Needle in a Haystack in that you can pull program files and go through those program files. But And suddenly in a program file for one, one story, you'll find something that relates to a different story. Or you'll find a general file. There'll be a whole sheaf of papers that relates to something a bit more generic. I remember in the general files, we found loads and loads and loads of proposals for the Doctor Who film. I think you'd put that in with Doctor Who film or something, wouldn't you? Or, mm. But no, it was in a general file. And of course, there's hundreds of general files. So it really is like you have to ask for what file you want to look at. And then they, they go out the back and rummage and bring it to you. And then you kind of go through it and see what it is that you've got and what you can kind of pull out from that and understand from that. So it very much is its research at its rawest sense in that you don't quite know what you're looking for. You don't quite know what, what you're going to find. And, of course, this is how all the telesnaps got found, was because um, I think it was Steve Walker found them, because 
he was going through lists of files because they have it's a computerized system, obviously. So they produced these computerized lists of files that they had. Steve spotted one, you know, General 37BQ4 or something, you know, whatever, and said, <laughs> oh, what's that one? What's that one? And they brought it, and it contained all the telesnaps. And it was a complete, you know, what? What's this? Struth. And then I think the same week, the same, same week, Marcus Hearn happened to see and pull the same file. Now, whether that's because, you know, Steve had seen it first or Marcus had seen it, nobody's quite sure. But, of course, I think in both cases, they let Doctor Who magazine know um, because there's a payment needed to copy any photographic stuff that's found. Hmm. And, of course, for telesnaps, the individuals couldn't afford it. So the only thing you could do, really, is go to Doctor Who magazine and say, hey, guys, do you know what we found? <laughs> but it's going to cost to get this stuff out the archive. Similar way going through the, the Virgin files, whereas they're a bit more ordered because, obviously, it was a file per book. So you can kind of go through the files per books and then a couple of general files with more general bits of information and stuff like that in. So really interesting, you know, things in there for the target books and stuff like that. I mean, I was actually more interested going through all the stuff for the Virgin books because there you're talking original novels. So unlike the target novelizations for original novels, you find things like original synopsis, original ideas, outlines, all sorts of stuff that's absolutely fascinating in the development of individual books that I don't think most of this stuff's ever been published or, or talked about. Um, whereas obviously for a target book, it, well, it, it's a target, but you never synopsis. It's obvious, you know. <laughs> yes, really interesting. David, you, I mean, you're one of the premier researchers of the show, and we, we, you, you can go back to the '90s to see the evidence of that. But you, you came up um, writing about the series. I think I'm right in saying during the '80s with a whole host of fanzines, Doctor Who fanzines. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. What what drove you to 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 write about the making of the show, research the show? What, what was that uh, the catalyst for that? I mentioned earlier on that you know I'd always watched it through the '60s, and and, and one of the things that I always find interesting about every show is the behind the scenes thing. I'm I'm I love to know how did they do that? You know, how did they create that effect? How did they build that monster? How did that work? What did they do? You know. And I always find talking to, you know, effects designers, costume designers, makeup designers, directors, um, scenic designers, you know, far more uh, interesting and enlightening than, than an interview with who played the doctor or the companion or, or you know, third guard on the left or, or whoever they may be. Now, you know, obviously all the cast have their part to play in it and, and they're important and, you know, that they're the people that bring it to life. But for me, I, I always loved all the behind-the-scenes elements. My first fanzine is 1977. Uh, I did my first fanzine. And, and that came about purely because there was going to be a convention in London, the first ever Doctor Who convention in Battersea um, in August 1977, organised by the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Um, and I met some Doctor Who... I joined the society in '76. Um, I got to know a few friends who lived in the area around me who were Doctor Who fans as well. Um, and so we were kind of having a bit of a laugh, you know, getting together and, you know, doing what we did uh, back in the day. And um, when we heard that there was this convention coming up and, and the Dwas also at the time was starting to this sort of local group idea that you could have local groups of Dwas members and uh, sort of advertise that fact through the newsletters and stuff to the to the rest of the society. That we kind of put together like the Surbiton Doctor Who Appreciation Society local group, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, <laughs> for, the, for the group of us that were kind of involved in, in the Surbiton area and surrounds and Kingston and stuff like that. Uh, so we kind of decided to do a fanzine for the first convention. Um, so I, I basically did it, and, and I think I, I, I cut out photos from um, uh, 
photocopy some bits and bobs from some books. So I can't remember where it all came from now. I do remember at that time, already at that time, I was interviewing and talking with Target Books. I was a member of the Target Book Club. I was getting proofs. Um, I was talking with Terence Dix. So I think the first issue, we had an interview with Terence Dix. We had a preview of the new Target book that was coming out. You can see my interests even then <laughs> haven't changed mm. very much over the years. And so we did the first fanzine for that first ever convention in 1977. And it was like a, a full scap photocopied 36p. It was um, six pages at 36p. And that was because it cost 6p to photocopy a page. So it was six, <laughs> 36p was how much it cost. Um, that's what we charged for it. No profit. It was just, you know, we just did it. And it did kind of went quite well. Um, so I kind of just continued it. And I think around about issue four, I, I changed the name of it to Oracle, um, which is from Underworld, the story Underworld. And, um, and then Oracle kind of ran for about four or five years as a sort of like a monthly fanzine that, that had a preview, target preview section and interviews and and all sorts of stuff in and and you know i really enjoyed doing that and, and talking to people and uh and, and just getting involved a bit more involved in you know publishing something and of course back then there was no desktop publishing so it was all cut and paste it was all scissors and i bought myself an electric typewriter so that i could actually do justification which was clever of me um <laughs> and it was all stuck down bits of paper on sheets and tipex and letra set for headings and but, you know, it looked good. I was quite pleased with it. Uh, and so that, that was Oracle, which kind of ran and, and everybody seemed to quite like. And then the next iteration of a fanzine was when um, I got together with Steve Walker and um, Mark Stammers. We all wanted to do something that was a bit better than the usual photocopied fanzine. And Mark at the time was a graphic designer and worked for a graphic design agency and had access to um, half tones and litho printing, which kind of was out of the reach of most fanzines. But we thought that because Mark could get a really good cheap deal for us, we could actually do this and, and not, you know, bankrupt ourselves in the process. So we started the frame uh, as a, like an A4 glossy, lots of photographs kind of fanzine. And again, it, it seemed to do really well and people seemed to love it. Um, and in the frame, particularly, we were all able to indulge ourselves in our love of photographs and illustration from Doctor Who, together with, you know, good research and good writing and, you know, solid content. So, and that's kind of really where that came from and how that all came together. Um, and I think we did that for about four years, although I lose track through sort of the early 90s. Yeah, it was good fun. Given the uh, the retro uh, nature of the, you know, the 2016, is there a, do you think there's a market for reprinting the frame or has it been superseded by your other works? I don't think it's been superseded. I mean, there was a lot of material in the frame which was quite unique. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, to be honest with you, it's a discussion I need to have with Stephen Mark. I think that probably we could reprint it as like one of those big, books on lulu or something you know yeah. there's been a few fanzine collections released on lulu i think we could probably collect all the frame together into one great big chunky book and, and just see what happened because i mean as long as it doesn't cost us a fortune <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter from our perspective and if people want to pay whatever it's going to cost for a nice big chunky book then then maybe that's something that we could do It'd be interesting to see if, if that was something that was doable i mean the irony is that in the garage i've still got lots of copies so <laughs> have you got issue one spare I need to. I, need, I don't have any issue ones, I'm afraid. That's the only one uh, I need but, to finish my collection. No, I'm sorry, that one sold out uh, quite quickly. I think we only we only did 300 copies of issue one. Yeah. Um, that sold out quite quickly. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, I think there's a possibility that we might do that at some point, but I, I think from all of our perspectives, there's no tearing hurry. We've got lots of other things we want to be doing, 
And um, yeah, no, it was a great fanzine. It was a great fanzine. And uh, I think it filled a little hole at the time for people that liked good writing and liked to see photographs, new photographs, you know, presented well. Um, and that's kind of what we were trying to do. Now, you mentioned earlier the, the, the spirit of curiosity animating you about looking at the background of, uh, of Doctor Who. I, I, I would imagine uh, that I'm right in saying that it's the same sort of spirit of curiosity that makes the, the, you know, helps you decide in terms of commissioning books that look at, uh, look at this, the making of series. I mean, I'm looking at uh, the Telos website. You've got making of books about you know, Battlestar Galactica, Charmed, Eurovision, Till Death Us Do Part. Is it that sort of thing that, you know, is the ultimate decider for you in terms of saying yes to a, a commission for a book of that nature? To some extent, yeah. Uh, I mean, both Steve and I are really interested in, in you know, behind the scenes and, and looking at, you know, opinion and making of and facts and figures about all these shows. And so, you know, certainly, you know, whether we are interested in it ourselves is, is one factor. Uh, I mean, the other factor is, is, is there a fandom? Is there a market into which we could sell those books? I mean, unfortunately, as I, I alluded to with, with the, the Target books and the publishers there and the BBC, it's the same for Telos. You know, we, we have to make sure that we're not going bankrupt. We have to make sure that we're making money. You know, not, not so that Steve and I can have holidays in the Bahamas. I mean, haha, you know, chance would be a fine thing. Um, mm. You know, we never make enough money to be able to do that. And every penny we get goes back into the company in some way, shape or form. But, you know, you have to make sure you're not going bankrupt and not leaving yourself with massive debts at the end of the day. Um, and when you're a small company, um, it becomes even more critical because just one book that costs you too much could put you into the red uh, and you may never recover from that. So we have to be very careful that every project we decide to take on is one that we think has a fair chance of actually making its money back and, and you know, that we're not going to, you know, go under because of it. Um, strangely, doing the new edition of the Target book has been a bit of a risk for us because even though we thought we can afford it, it's still quite an expensive book to do. So it's taken quite a hole out of Telos's bank account. Um, in order to actually just get it all done. And obviously, we're now hoping we can sell enough to, to fill that hole back up again, basically. So always a risk. But we do love those kinds of behind-the-scenes, background you know, books. And if, if writers can bring a particular perspective to it or a particular element of research to it that hasn't been done before, then absolutely, you know, we're, we're interested in looking. You know, and if it seems to have a market and it seems to have a fandom and there are people out there who would want to buy that book, then we'd certainly be interested in doing it. The Wiped Book by Richard Molesworth? Yes. A fairly niche subject. But yeah. it's Doctor Who, Yes. and yes. it's an area that's never been covered before in that much detail. And that, that book has done really, really well. It's been very popular. Um, there's such an interest in the missing episodes, in what Doctor Who we can't see and why. That book has been very, very successful, which is great. And I'm really pleased for Richard that it has been so successful because I think he put his heart and soul into researching that. And again... Um, as you kindly said with the target book, I mean, it shows in the finished product that, that, you know, Richard, you know, lives, breathes, sweats this stuff. It's a fascinating book. And like the target book, it, it also started as a series of articles in DWM. I think it did, yes. Small world. <laughs> <laughs> Will there be an updated edition three? Yeah, people keep asking us that. And, and we have asked Richard that. But so far, Richard's not come back with an indication that he wants to do a further update. I think we're, we're kind of running low on stocks again of it. So it's probably time that we, we go and ask Richard again. Um, because obviously every every time we run low on stocks, we say to him, you know, do you want to do an update or are we just going to reprint the one we've got? And so it's time for that question to go to Richard again, I think, um, and see see what he feels this time around. I know previously he wanted to allow, allow more time between Web of Fear and uh, Enemy being found 
because I think it was also uncertain as to what was happening and what exactly was going on. You know, and as I'm sure you're aware, this accursed Omni rumor, which rumbles and continues to rumble around the internet that, you know, that says that I'm sitting here now looking at tapes of Fear from the Deep on my shelf, even as we speak, and cackling to myself and rubbing my hands, Mr. Burns style, that, you know, nobody will ever be able to see these, but ha ha. Um, so, yeah, so I know Richard wants to allow a bit of time. I don't know if enough time has now passed. Um, I just don't know, um, but we will see. Um, I honestly can't answer that question because it's one for Richard. Um, I would like there to be a, an update, even if it's just a little chapter on the end to say, and here's what happened with these. I think that would be interesting. So we'll we just have to see. We'll just have to see. And what was your reaction when uh, you were able to watch Enemy of the World and The Web of Fear? I loved watching them. It's just absolutely bowled over. I mean, it's, it's the same reaction whenever I watch any episode that was lost. It was like, you know, you never thought you were going to see this. Um, but to be able to sit down and watch Web of Fear, oh, my goodness me. And when that episode two starts, I still don't believe it until I see the scene of Jamie and Victoria kind of behind the, the bars in the room, because that's the first bit of footage we've not seen before. <laughs> I know how you feel. I was watching Enemy of the World last week. I went straight to episode three. I said, oh, hold on. <laughs> I'll go back and watch episode one. <laughs> yeah. No, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And um, I think I've said for a long time that the episodes we've got of Troughton, um, were not representative of how good Troughton was and how good Jamie, Jamie was as a companion in particular. And I think when Webb and Enemy came back, that kind of indicated me because they were brilliant and they were far better than anything else that we had from yes. Troughton. And, and I still think there are episodes and stories missing which are as good as those two that really show, you know, imagination and production team working at, at full capacity I mean, you know, Evil of the Daleks, of course, Food from the Deep. I mean, I'd love to see Macro Terror. I think Macro Terror is just an amazing audio. I'd love to see that on the screen. There's so much that, you know, I'd love to see still, but it was absolutely brilliant. I and mean, what an amazing 50th birthday present to get those two stories back. David, it's, it's pleasing to hear that what was so well received because I've followed the Omni Rumor too closely over the last few years, and sometimes it feels like it's a couple of dozen... Uh, middle-aged men howling at the moon, talking, ab talking about it. So, <laughs> it's mainly so, me and you, Rob. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that the, the book in both its editions has sold uh, very, very well. So that's, that's, that's really pleasing. Good to know that people not only perhaps they listen to what nonsense gets spouted on the internet, <laughs> but they actually also want, want to arm themselves with some facts, you know, and actually want to know what really happened. Yes. You know, and, and why it is incredibly unlikely that we're going to see Dalek's Master Plan Episode 7 ever return. You know, it just wasn't sold anywhere. You know, the chances of that existing are infinitesimally small. You know, but it's not until you understand why that you kind of then start, oh, okay, I see, oh, I get it now. You know, I understand, you know. Interesting. But it's nice that, as I say, people do want to arm themselves with the actual facts because it helps everybody, I think, understand why we are where we are, you know, why there is so much stuff missing, you know, almost why things have been found, where and when they've been found, and what the chances of anything else appearing are. It's, it's really interesting. And the traffic records as well, where they went to and where they went on from there. When I looked at first edition to the second edition, there was so much more information in the second edition. So where is he getting this information from? And it's, you know, 40, 50 year old data. It's just amazing how it's still getting uncovered today. Absolutely. And again, we've spoken about Richard, but I mean, I, I believe as well that there's a lot of, of research activity happening in New Zealand and Australia as well, yes. um, which is uncovering a lot of this stuff. So let's not, you know, forget that, you know, Richard isn't the only person who's looking into this and investigating and researching this. Um, there's lots of other people, too, who are all adding to the picture. 
um, you know, helping everybody to understand what's going on because it is complicated. It's, you know, it's not straightforward. You know, it's far more complicated than you would even possibly imagine. You think if the BBC had had sat down and thought, what what is the best way to actually distribute these episodes around the world? You know, they couldn't have come up with a more complicated way (laughs) than what actually happened. Yeah, we uh, spoke to John Preddle last year. We titled the episode Bicycle Race. So if you haven't yeah. checked that out, have a listen to it. Talks about the um, broadcast who site and all the information yeah. he's put on it. John is one of the great um, researchers of Doctor Who. He's, mm. he's, he's such a knowledge, such an authority. Um, always interested to hear what John's got to say. And you know, and, and again, like you know, others I've mentioned, his research is second to none. So, yeah, you know, again, so, so many people. All kudos, you know, to John and others who who continue to try and bring light to everybody as as to as to these these murky areas of Doctor Who's past. David, um, as you described, you built on all that research and and and, and writing during the eighties with uh, Oracle and the Frame. And then um, you effectively burst to even greater prominence writing for Virgin, for Virgin Books in the 90s. And I, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will have very, very, very fond memories, particularly of the, of the Decades books. Uh, yeah. tell, us, tell us how um, a bit about how that all came about. Strangely, again, it, it all comes out of my love for, for the Target books. It's just, it's just like everything comes back to Target books. Because I like the book so much, and I deliberately, over the years, kept in touch with all the editors, the publishers um, who've been publishing them. So I got advanced information and covers and, and all sorts of bits and bobs. So when Peter Darvill Evans you know, took over from Nigel Robinson, I, I kind of phoned up or whatever it was. I don't think we had email in, the, in those days and sort of introduced myself or Nigel introduced me to Peter or something. Um, and I basically got to know Peter and you know going to see him every couple of months and stuff and see how things were going on and all this sort of thing. Peter was obviously finishing off the target novelizations ranges, thinking about starting original fiction ranges uh, um, and stuff like that, and also kind of dipping his toe into non-fiction books. You know, what, what could they do in terms of non-fiction? Um, and I'd already been helping Nigel with um, some of the non-fiction that he was publishing. Um, so I, I remember I kind of proofread some of Peter Haining's books, uh, and came came back with lots of corrections and bits and bobs and stuff there um, of what Peter was doing. I think I got credited in a couple of them, um, as I recall. And of course, Jeremy Bentham did his early years book, um, which was which was tremendous fun. And then when Peter came along, as I say, Peter was looking for sort of ways to do factual books um, that would be slightly different, that would be a bit more kind of um, all inclusive and 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 popular and this sort of thing. So um, I remember we were in sitting in in a pub in London, and it may even have been the the, the, the tavern, the, the one in um, um, Bloomsbury, which, which the, the Doctor Who fans still kind of accumulate in the first Thursday of every month. Uh, we may be missing there with, with me and Steve and Mark and, and chatting about sort of Doctor Who books and what was going on and stuff like that. Um, and I remember uh, Peter was telling us some, some stuff he was doing. It might have even been the, the Adrian Rogersford Monsters book. I can't remember. Um, and uh, we, we said to Peter, so so when are you going to commission us to do a book for you then? Because we, we're doing the frame. And I think Peter was saying, oh, I love the frame. It's wonderful. You know, it's great. You do such good design and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we said, well, you know, when are you going to ask us to do a book then? 
And Peter basically said, well, when are you going to offer me one? Uh, and we sort of went, oh, is that what we're meant to do then? You know, we had no clue. Is that what we're meant to do? Are we meant to actually offer you one? And people would go, Peter went, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you, you come up with the idea and, and you come and talk to me. Oh, right. OK, then. That's a nice idea. So the three of us went away and we had a good old think. And um, what we came up with was a book called Daleks! Exclamation mark. Because in the frame, we'd been doing a series called Dalek Design, which was chronicling all the different Daleks and the way that they change from story to story. You know, different sorts of eye stalks and slats and not slats and bits and bobs and, you know, all sorts of stuff um, was there. Uh, that that was in part being done with a chap called Tony Clark, and we had all this information. We thought, well, let's do let's, you know, in the same way as my Virgin articles became, you know, the target book, you know, later on, maybe we could take all of these articles on Dalek design and use that as the backbone of a book called Daleks, which is all about the Daleks, because there's never been a book all about the Daleks, and it would seem to be popular enough. So we put together a proposal, and Mark did all layouts for it and page page examples and stuff like that and we, we sent all that into peter peter absolutely loved it and said absolutely brilliant yep yep superb you know let's do daleks fantastic so he was all up for it so the the, the final hurdle was that uh, virgin needed to get permission from terry nation's agents and people in america to say yay we can do it because i think the bbc were happy that it could be done but uh, the bbc i think must have said oh you need to get permission from like, terry nation's agents as well so Virgin got in touch with Terry Nation's agents and heard nothing and heard nothing and heard nothing. So frustrating. And then I think it got to a point and Peter was like, oh, this is just ridiculous. We're just going to do it. This is just ridiculous. We're just going to do it. <laughs> we can't wait forever. This is crazy. So I think they issued us with contracts. They sent us draft contracts for us to sign. And we then send them back to them and then they sign them. And then it would all have been a done deal. Yeah. So they sent us the draft contracts to look at. And I think on the same day as we got the contracts, Peter got a fax from Terry Nation's agents saying, we do not give permission for this book to be done. We decline permission. So I think Peter went back and said, well, why? You know, what's the problem? You know, you get some money from it. What's the problem? And they said, well, Terry's doing a book called The Complete Doctor Who and the Daleks in America, and we think this will compete with it. So we're not prepared for you to do this book. That was the end of it, basically. So Peter came back and said, well, I'm really sorry. Um, we can't do it. We can't do it. I mean, we were gutted because, you know, if Terry Nation had waited another week to come back, we'd have had signed and completed contracts and Virgin would have had to have paid us. Paid you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was, oh, so we were like, oh, for, well, what can we do? So Peter, Peter said, don't worry, come, you know, have another thing. Come back with another idea. You know, I want to work with you. Come back with another idea. So we went away and and um, and we had a think. And, and I think I don't I don't know whose idea it was, but one of us must have come and said, "Well, let's do let's do the sixties. Let, let's do a book all on Doctor Who in the sixties." So again, we, we went back to Peter with that, and Peter says, "Yep, love it. Great, we'll do it." Do we need permission from Terry Nation's agent? No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So and that was how the sixties was born. And. Um, and so we did the 60s and then Peter was really happy. It sold well. So then the 70s came along and then, of course, the 80s came along after that. Um, and it was a lovely way to re-explore uh, those decades of Doctor Who, again, in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, with original research, I mentioned about, um, you know, first-person research beforehand. We, we tried wherever we could to do first-person research. So... You know, we, we used interviews that we had done ourselves or we conducted them. We went to the British uh, BBC archives. We did the research ourselves. And we tried very, very hard not to assume anything in the book. So the wording of the book was very carefully done 
so that nothing was being assumed. Because if you assume something, there's always the chance that something will be found later on and you'll be proved to be wrong. Mm. Um, whereas if you just go on the facts as you know them, as you've been told them, you can never be wrong because that is the facts as you know, as you know them. So that was what we tried to do. And I think in many respects, that's why those three books still stand up today. You know, even with all of the research and information and knowledge that's come since we did those books, I still don't think anything in those books is actually wrong. It's not actually incorrect, you know, because we, we were very careful about only using verified facts as we wrote the books. Um, so, yeah, so that was how they came along. And then the handbooks were similar. In fact, it was Peter's, one of Peter's assistants came to us one day and said, uh, we're thinking of doing a series of paperbacks, one on each doctor. Would you like to write them? <laughs> and we went, oh, OK. Then. <laughs> so, yeah, and that became the handbooks, which, again, was a different way of looking at it, a different way of looking at the series, uh, of breaking it down, you know, trying to do something different, something that hadn't been done before, um, something that complemented the, the 60s, 70s, 80s books. Um, you know, it was all about, you know, not trying to scrape the bottom of barrels, but to try and find new information and present stuff in a way that hadn't been done before so that the books all felt fresh and new. And, and I hope we succeeded with that. And I'm still quite proud of all of the stuff we did for Virgin. It was good. The Hartnell Handbook, I remember, it was almost like a day in the life, wasn't it? Where yeah. yeah and you level, the amount of detail on it, I, I, I was completely fascinated about the fact that... Uh, you know, Canada weren't happy with their telling recordings and asked for a new batch, and it's just yeah. amazing all the amount of details that uh, you're able to, to well, unearth and what, and bust some myths as well. Absolutely. Well, what happened there was it was purely the the, the BBC's archives, hmm. in that um, from pretty much most of the sixties, that they kept everything. You know, there's a very detailed paper trail of just about everything to do with Doctor Who, so you could actually do a day by day. You know, this is what happened. As you move into the 70s and 80s, so that paper trail slowly but surely dries up in that they didn't record everything. You know, mm. things weren't put down on paper. Um, things have been destroyed. Things have been deemed of not of not being of historical interest. So the archives themselves go through and like edit their files and destroy elements of them because mm. they don't think people will be interested in them in the future. And then as you get into the... Um, you know, the 80s and 90s. So the paper trail pretty much dries up completely because everything moves to email. There's no paper trail anymore. No. So, you know, you, you can't find out what happened. It's not possible, um, which is a bit of a shame in a way for a researcher. <laughs> and that's, that's the problem that uh, biographers and historians will increasingly find, isn't it, with the, it the, the rise of email, the, the lack of any written record to, you know, to, to, to go through and, and, and you know, catalogue effectively. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's, it's such a shame. It's such a shame that, that that is not preserved. But, I mean, I'm as guilty of it. When we started Telos, um, I kept a file for every book that we published. And into that file, I put copies of letters, correspondence, early drafts, synopsis, cover ideas, outlines, sketches. Yeah, I put everything into those files. Um, so I've actually got that for pretty much all of the Doctor Who novellas that Telos published um, way back in the day. Um, but as we move forward, so time gets on top of you, so you stop doing that. And I've not done that for four or five years now, purely because you think, well, you know, it, it's stuff you've got to find somewhere to put. You've got to find a file cabinet or somewhere to put it. You know, plus things move at such a pace. And, and I don't want to spend my entire life um, printing off emails just so that I can put them in files. 
Mm. It, it just just seems counterproductive. It's that's not my job. You know, my job is to publish books. You know, it's just not to print off emails and stuff. So in a way, I have a lot of sympathy with the people in television and stuff that aren't doing this because they are probably thinking in exactly the same way. But it's not my job. You know, um, but as you say, it does leave a bit of a hole for someone who wants to come and try and understand the thought process, the design process, the, the creative process behind how we got to where we got to um, with whatever show or film or whatever it was, um, because a lot of that just doesn't exist. And then, of course, you get things like the Sony leak, uh, which was all digital. Yeah. Um, and of course, that further puts people off storing stuff in any way, in any shape or form. Mm. <laughs> because they think that could happen to us you know and i don't want people finding out how x got a part in that film or or why we chose not to go with that actor or whatever you know no matter how interesting that might be to future generations exactly now david tell us publishers each year a comprehensive uh, guide to the series to the to the to the new series um in terms of the the the, the decades books and the handbooks where it's almost the product of uh, you know many many years of, of research and and, and, and and thinking about you know the, the creation of the series, whereas the, the, the these unauthorized guides that you, you put out and um, they're, they're very comprehensive, they're, they're almost done uh, at the time, aren't they? With yeah. uh, I don't know how else to say with, with not as much reflection, I suppose. Um, how do you manage that? As a as a publisher, well, the the, the guy the guides are all written by Steve Walker, um, mm -hmm. and and Steve is um, he's an incredible writer, um, he's an incredible researcher, um, he knows his stuff, you know, inside and out. Um, in probably far more than I do. Um, Steve just knows stuff; it's just incredible. And obviously, when you're doing unofficial guides, as as indeed the ones that Telos do, you are limited because we don't have any access to the production office. We don't have access to scripts or paperwork or anything that we've been just talking about. You know, we, we have no special insights here, you know, mm -hmm. except being able to chronicle what happened from the point of view of someone who was there and watching it happen. So that's really what Steve tries to do with these books is that they're, that there is an opinion element to them in that he does fairly comprehensive reviews of each of the stories um, for a particular year. Um, but there's also an awful lot of reportage of this happened and this happened and then that happened and then there was this leak and then people said that and then this got to that spot in the charts. Yeah, there's a lot of factual reporting, um, which is purely picked up from Steve's research and keeping his finger on the pulse of what's going on and what's happening. So um, to have that kind of encapsulated in a book, we see these, I think, as a bit of a time capsule of, you know, this is what it was like at the time. And I think if you go back and look at the first one we did, um, Back to the Vortex, which um, was actually written by Sean Lyon, um, Sean was working on very much the same principles. And I think if you go back and look at that book, you will find a, a time capsule of what it was like in, in 2005 when the new series was announced and what news and information came out in what order, what the reaction was, how that changed, how that made it to the screen, and from the point of view of an outsider looking in, how that all developed. And that's absolutely fascinating as, as a kind of like a social document on the development of Doctor Who rather than a production document on the development of Doctor Who. So by, by way of example, the, the brilliant work that Andrew Pixley does um, for Doctor Who magazine in his um, series guides, yeah? Mm. 
where you know he has access to all the internal paperwork, the production details, etc., etc., etc. So you know Andrew can tell you exactly what was filmed on what day at which street corner. You know who was there, who was holding the boom. You know who dropped that piece of chewing gum on the floor. Yeah, he, he can document it to that level of detail. Yeah, which is fantastic because you then get the insider's view of what's happening. But Although Andrew does document to some extent the, the outsider looking in view, he certainly doesn't do it to the extent that we do in the Telos guides. Um, because again, what we're trying to do is present something new and different, something that you can't get anywhere else. Um, and I think that's what, what we are trying to do, really. And Steve is very good. I, I, I don't know how Steve does it. You need to talk to him. Um, mm. But I, I suspect he has a diary and that he writes down every day when he sees something happen or a news report or or something going on. So he's got that to refer back to when he actually comes to write the book uh, and what's actually happening. I know Andrew Pixley does that. I know Andrew keeps a day-by-day -day diary and everything that happens on a given day, he'll jot it down in the diary just so that he's got that written down. Because a number of times I've gone to Andrew and said, um, this piece of merchandise, Andrew, do you know when that was written? Oh, hang on, hang on, let me check. And he'll go to his diary for the year, flick through and say, ah, oh, yes, that, I, that was first released on that day. It was early because I bought it in Smith's on that, you know. And it's incredible. <laughs> hmm. There are um, there are no doubt future researchers who will who will use the guides, your guides, uh, to, as the basis of future books, and they'll probably drop to their knees and thank God that they they exist. Well, that's what we hope. I mean, that that's really the hope of any researcher. Is why do you do this? You do this so that this can be used by other people in the future, so that it's recorded and not lost. You know that that's that I think is the purpose of research. Um, is to try and present stuff that's interesting, that isn't lost, that can then be used by somebody else in the future. Can we just go back to uh, the John Pertwee biography? I Am um, a Doctor, I yep. think it was, in 96. How did that come about? And uh, had you known John Pertwee before? Just tell us about your thoughts and experiences on the book. I'd known John for kind of several years, um, but just not, not, not as in, you know, best buds going out for dinners, whatever. I, you know, obviously I'd known him as a fan. Um, we, we'd met at various conventions, I think I might have interviewed him on stage. I can't remember. Um, but, you know, he, he was aware of me. I obviously knew him. And so, uh, you know, we were in that circle, as it were. So what happened was, I think it was 1994. And I think it was at Longleat. And I think it was the paperback release of Time Frame, because the hardback came out in 1993. That's right, yeah. And I, and I think the paperback was 1994. And I'd been invited down to Longleat to do a signing session there of the book. Um, I don't know who arranged that or whatever, probably Virgin. Um, so I was down there um, signing copies of Time Frame. And I think John Pertby was there and Sylvester McCoy and maybe Colin Baker and a handful of companions. I can't remember now. But it was, it was like the, the big kind of Longleat thing um, that John Nathan Turner was involved in um, back in uh, in '94. And it was at that event that I found myself in the green room with John um, towards the end of the event. And we were just kind of chatting in a way. I said to John something like, um, you know, so, you know, you, you, obviously you did, you did moon boots and dinner suits. You know, had you ever thought of doing you know, like a, you know, completing the story? Because that only went up to the end of the war kind of thing. And John sort of said, oh, I'd, I'd never have time, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'd need to work with someone on that or, or words to that effect. And I said, well, would you like to work with me on it? Because, you know, I'd be really interested in, you know, helping you pull all that together. 
you know, and I think I might be able to find a publisher to sort of do it. And, you know, it might be really interesting. And John said, oh, that's really interesting. So he said, yeah, okay, well, you know, give, give, give me a ring and, you know, we'll arrange and we'll have another chat kind of thing. So I thought, oh, okay then. Wow, fantastic. You know, because I was a bit in awe of John. I think everyone who ever met him was. Um, he's a very charismatic man. Um, and so I think a couple of days afterwards I phoned him up and I arranged to go and see him. Uh, went over his house and we had a chat and he seemed kind of really up for you know, basically working on an autobiography, second version, volume of autobiography with me. So that was great. Um, so we started to kind of, again, pull that together. Um, but I, the, the, interestingly enough, one of the big issues was that we, we pulled together an outline of you know what it was going to cover. And obviously it was going to pick up from where Moon Boots left off and kind of take you through everything that John had done, including Doctor Who, Wurzel, um, you know, all that stuff um, was going to be in it. Um, but I couldn't find a publisher. Um, I, I wrote to many publishers and every single one of them turned it down. They said, no, we're not interested. We're not interested in John Pertwee autobiography. And I was like, but but this is John Pertwee. You know, he's done everything. He's met everybody. You know, why aren't you interested? Because I was doing um, Starburst at the time, reviews for Starburst, I knew a lot of the publishers anyway. I knew a lot of the editors. So I think it was one of the editors for HarperCollins when they turned it down. I went back and I said, look, this is getting ridiculous. You know, can you tell me why aren't you interested? I don't understand. Help me to understand. Why aren't you interested? The guy basically said, well, what can I say, David? So I said, well, just be straight with me. Why aren't you interested? And he said, well, is John a recovering alcoholic? No. <laughs> um, is, 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 is John on drugs? No. Is, is he dying from cancer? No. Is he going to tell us all about every single woman he's ever slept with? No. Is anyone in his family, you know, involved in any scandal or drugs or always dying from cancer? Well, no. Well, that's why we're not interested. And I was like, what? So, so basically, you know, unless the celebrity has got some great big scandal hanging over them or some, you know, drugs, cancer something utterly horrible, then they're not interested in the autobiography. And I was like, I was staggered. And I, I went to John and I told him this. And he was like, but he was staggered as well. He just could not, we just could not understand why nobody was interested in, you know, the second volume of John's autobiography. Just utterly ridiculous. So in the end, I was discussing it again with Peter Darvel Evans at Virgin. And Peter said, well, we would be interested in doing it, but it would have to be a Doctor Who autobiography. So I said, well, what do you mean by that? So he said, well, we want it in the same format as the other books, a large format, lots of Doctor Who photographs, and only covering Doctor Who. If that was what you could do, then we'd be interested in that. So again, I went back to John, and John was really disappointed. He was mm. kind of, I've tried all of these other publics. No one is interested, but Virgin are interested, but only if it's Doctor Who. So he basically said, okay, then, well, we'll do it as a Doctor Who one then, you know. And so that's what we did. And to some extent, that is why in I Am The Doctor, there are sections on, you know, Navy Lark and Wurzel and other things, because we wanted to try and get some of that into the book, even though it was primarily Doctor Who. You know, we wanted to try and get some of the other stuff into the book. So that was why we did that. So having kind of finally got a publisher, um, I then basically started writing the book with John. And so every week, Wednesday afternoons, I would go round John's house armed with Doctor Who videos and we'd sit and we watch we watch through all of John's Doctor Who's and I recorded John basically talking about anything and everything that he could remember to do with them. 
So from locations to guest stars to whatever, um, we talked about it. And then we had sessions where we just talked about all sorts of other stuff as well. Um, and I recorded it all. And then I took it home, transcribed all the tapes, and then tried to put it all into some kind of coherent order um, for the book. Um, I also had a lot of research materials, photocopies. John had a whole pile of newspaper cuttings, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and again, I went through all of those, pulled out every single story that I could find, and then tried to position them correctly within Doctor Who. And that was quite hard because John was a great storyteller. And so some of his stories were quite hard to try and work out where he was talking about when that happened. You know, if indeed it did happen, yes. you know, where, where would you place that story? Hmm. Um, but I think, you know, we managed it. So I, I then wrote all the chapters up. John then went through them with a pen and, you know, said, oh, yeah, that's right. No, that's not quite right. That was a different place. Or you didn't mention X. Well, we didn't talk about X. OK, well, let's talk about X now then, you know, and back and forth a bit until we got the finished chapters and stuff sorted out. Um, and that's really how the book came to then be be pulled together. What was interesting was that we'd made a decision that it was going to be written as John. So um, it was going to be in first person. So I was writing it as John, you know, in first person. Hmm. When we got to kind of towards the end of it, I think John was going off on holidays and bits and bobs. And um, I had to deliver the manuscript, I think, to Virgin. I can't remember. There must have been a deadline or something, some reason why I did this. I couldn't get hold of John. But there was one chapter where I couldn't actually get to John to talk to him. So I had to write that chapter as John without actually having <laughs> gone through all the stuff with him in the first place. Yeah. But it was based on, you know, knowledge and facts and research and other things that I had um, to bring it all together. Um, I hope you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. I achieved it then. That was all great. And so, you know, we did all the book. We, we, we pulled it all together. We put as much non-Doctor Who in as we could. I then went and did all the photo research at the BBC and got all the, the photos together and from my collections and other people's collections. John had loads of photos too, so we pulled loads of photos from John's collection and all that kind of stuff. And then I think the manuscript had gone off to Virgin for them to just, you know, make sure they were happy with it. And then the final thing I had to do was all the photo captions. So um, I arranged with John to go over to his, on. I think it was a Saturday morning because he was flying over to America, I think, on Saturday afternoon, getting a plane out for a, for a two-week holiday or something. And I wanted to get the captions done. So I went over to see John on the Saturday morning and we sat down and we went through all the photographs. And again, John talked about each photograph, memories coming out and so on and so on. Um, and again, I think I recorded it all because it was just easier to, to get the caption information. Yeah, so we did all that. I came home, and then I think the middle of the next week, I got a call to say that John had died in America because it was on that holiday that he had a heart attack That's or whatever right, it was, yeah. died. So, and it was like, oh. <laughs> you know, utterly horrendous, utterly horrendous. It's 20 years ago next month. Is it? May 96. Yes, it would be. Yeah, yes. it's gone so quick. Yeah, and of course, once John died, Virgin, and I couldn't believe this, Virgin kind of turned round and um, basically said, well, because John's not here, um, we're only going to print a contractual obligation number of books because we don't think we're going to sell them. So they basically only printed the number that they had pre-orders from shops for, and that was it. And that's why they never did a paperback, and that's why that book is quite hard to find. I'm lucky I got it then. Virgin lost all faith in it and basically said, well, you know, what's the point? John's not around to promote it. Unbelievable. If you can, give us a sense of, of what John Pertwee was like. I mean, in your inter interactions, what was John Pertwee the man like as a, opposed to the performer? Very hard to separate the two. John, John was a very unique person. He was 
he was ebullient. He was a raconteur. He was a storyteller. He had so much charisma that, you know, you, you knew you were in the presence of John Pertwee, um, even when he was just being John Pertwee. Um, I mean, he, he was friendly. He was he was generous. He would not suffer fools gladly. Hmm. You know, so if he thought you were trying to get one over on him, you know, he would have you. You know, he, he wouldn't let it lie, as it were. Um, but you know, he, 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 he was, he was a nice guy. He was friendly. He was chatty. No, it was lovely. I mean, I would, I would go around there. As I say, Wednesday lunchtimes, it was one time I remember he opened the door to me in his pajamas and I was like, oh, he's John Pertwee in his pajamas. Good Lord. And, and he went down to the kitchen and made me some toast and we had a cup of tea and, you know, and we were chatting about stuff. And I think that was the occasion when in his kitchen, he had some fried locusts. And he, he was telling me stories about offering fried locusts to various celebrities and and their delicacy and all this kind of thing. Because it, it just like, everywhere he went, everywhere he turned, you know, he met people. And, and I know I know he embellished some of his stories, but I think every single one of them had a basis in truth. There was a basis that, that something along these lines did actually happen to him. You know, whether it's what was it driving a camel down fleet street in london or you know meeting the raj of peru on holiday somewhere and ending up in his hotel having dinner you know everything happened to him you know he, he didn't make it up yeah mm. he, he he may be embellished you know he, he may be put himself more center stage in the stories but i don't think he actually made them up because he, he had met everybody and done everything and been everywhere and and he was an incredible man and you know never lost for words um just very nice friendly um but as i say he could be prickly he could be hard you know if he wasn't in a particularly good mood or something you, you couldn't really get much out of him you know uh, but i think we all get like that <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's amazing how that world war ii generation of of people seem or actors seem so more infinitely entertaining and interesting than their modern day counterparts isn't it i mean Troughton yeah. served pertwee served um, you know, Tom Baker, I think, did national service and all that sort of thing. They they just seem more rant. They seem more human than the sort of anodyne, plastic figures who seem to dominate Hollywood and TV today. I know. I, I think part of that is because implicitly all of these people were entertainers. You know, they weren't just actors. They were entertainers. So they they had learnt their craft through music hall, um, through theatre, um, through touring plays, through being part of repertory companies. You know, where you have to think on your feet, where you, you have to do everything from open the curtains at the beginning of the start to the thing to, to mop the floor at the end of it, you know, as well as acting it, you know. They, they've done everything. And, and this is this whole generation of 50s, 60s actors came up through that route. So they were very, very versatile. They could sing, they could dance, they could talk, they could tell a story, they could narrate, they could act, they could perform you know, you name it, they could do it. Um, I mean, John could play guitar. Uh, and, you know, these days, that, that that doesn't happen. Actors don't have that kind of background and training before they actually come to the screen. You know, you're an actor. Well, you know, what have you done? Well, I've acted in television series. Is that all? Yeah, that's all I've done. You know, okay. <laughs> and, and again, it's that old, you know, experience maketh the man. And... Mm. That's why these people are so much more entertaining because they were trained to entertain, trained to do that from an early age. And yeah. it stays with you. You know, and we're talking about people like Bruce Forsyth, 
you know, Tarby, um, you know, some of the, the old greats that are still with us, um, you know, came up through that route. You know, I don't know about Australia, you see. I, I don't know who your equivalent might be. Uh, maybe someone like Barry Humphreys, you know, a, an entertainer through and through. Mm. Yeah. You know, you couldn't say he, he can act, he can sing, he can dance, he can raconteur, he can dress up, he can play characters. He, you know, you, you could put Barry Humphreys on a stage, give him a script he's never seen before, and he could make you go, oh, my God, and make you cry, you know, yeah. because he's got that innate level of talent within him mm. because he's done that for so long. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that a good example? It's a no, very, it's very good, good example. David, so we'll we'll wrap it up by having a having a chat about uh, Telos Publishing, yes. which bestrides the publishing world like a behemoth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being silly. I mean. No, looking looking at the catalogue, uh, I mean, yes, it, it, you do cover a, a genre, but I think you cover a broad range of genre. Tell us about how Telos came about and 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 what sort of uh, what sort of books you've put out into the marketplace. Telos came about again. It's out of my love for Doctor Who. I mean, um, so so what what happened was back in nineteen ninety nine, I think it must have been. Um, there was another um, independent press in the UK called PS Publishing that just started up, and they were publishing a number of novellas. So um, for those that don't know it, a novella is like a short novel. It's, it's, it's sort of something between 20 to 30, maybe 40,000 words. So it's about the length of a target book, strangely. Um, this is great. This, this is, this is, see what is it there? Um, <laughs> so... Um, so, and it's a great way of telling stories because you can do things in the, in the shorter form that you can't do for a, for a novel. You can sustain a slightly different approach, a different way of writing. Um, you can be a bit more experimental because you don't have to sustain it for a novel length. So I thought these were great, and um, I, I love the idea of these these shorter original fictions. Um, and so I thought, you know, oh, it'd be lovely to have some Doctor Who versions of these. This would be great. You know, I'd love to see some, you know, Doctor Who stories at this kind of shorter form. Um, with, with lots of adventure and, and intrigue and, and, and interest in them. So um, I put together a proposal and I, I went to the BBC and I said, you know, would you let me publish some Doctor Who novellas here? Uh, I think a couple of years before um, I'd done the Doctor Who calendar. Oh, I yes. think we did a, a calendar of artwork and stuff, which I was still quite pleased with. Um, and the BBC had given me a license to do that. So I thought, well, you know, they'll give me one already. Maybe, maybe they'll give me one for this. So I went to them and sort of proposed all of this idea of Doctor Who novellas um, and uh, much to my amazement they came back and said well yeah we will license you to do that you know um, that'd be great um, but actually we, we won't license you um, we can only license a limited company um, we, we have to deal with limited companies so if you can sort that out then yeah we'll, we'll sort out a license for a limited company to do the thing so I thought oh well, that's great a limited company hmm, interesting so at, at the same time I'd been talking with um, Arnold Blumberg about doing a Doctor Who merchandise guide. Um, and again, that's another whole story in itself. But the short form is that we couldn't find a publisher for Love and the Money throughout most of the um, 80s and 90s, um, which was just painful. So in the end, we decided to do it ourselves. So we had that kind of bubbling up and around as well. What had happened around mid-90s um, when kind of the internet started to become a bit more pervasive and everybody was buying domain names and there was a kind of like a domain name gold rush going on where everybody had to get their domain name or it would be gone forever kind of thing. Mm. Um, 
so I, I bought my domain name, which I still have, um, How's Who, um, which was named after my column in um, Doctor Who magazine, I think, or somewhere. No, that was in Million Magazine. Uh, not Doctor Who. Another magazine I had a column called um, How's Who. In. I bought um, howswho.co.uk. And then I was idly looking for other domain names that might be available. So, you know, like Doctor Who had gone. You know, Dalek had gone. Cyberman had gone. Gallifrey had gone. Scaro had gone. Telos. Oh, Telos was available. <laughs> so, and, and these cost, I don't know, 10 quid or something for two years. So I thought, oh, what, what the devil? So I bought it, not having any thought as to whether I might need it. Or I just thought, it's a nice short name. It's something to do with Doctor Who. I can't have any of the others, so I'll have that one. <laughs> so I bought Telos.co.uk. Then when we came to do the merchandise guide, um, I realized that I needed some way of promoting that online. And um, so because I had the Telos domain name sitting there not doing anything, I thought, well, if we just put Telos on the merchandise book and then use that domain name, I can use that domain name to promote that book. So that was kind of what we were doing at around that sort of time. Um, I was using the domain name for that. So when the BBC came along and said, oh, you need to have a company, I thought to myself, well, I've got the Telos domain name. I wonder if I could set up Telos as the publishing company. So in the little bit of investigation, yes, I could. So I bought the company, as you you know do off the shelf. You, you pay for company registration, all that kind of thing. So I got all of that sorted. So I now had Telos Publishing Limited as the company. And again, it was at that point that I contacted Steve Walker, you know, my, my old pal, hmm. um, because I knew Steve knew a lot about small business and he is very good on finance and all stuff like that. And I asked Steve if he'd like to come and basically help me run the company um, so that we could do these Doctor Who novellas. And Steve happily agreed. So um, Telos became, you know, myself and Steve, and thus was licensed by the BBC to do the Doc Two novellas. Um, at the same time, a lot of stuff happens at the same time. At the same time, I was dealing with another company um, to do a book of stories based on a horror series called Urban Gothic, which had been on Channel Five late night here. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it in Australia. Mm. Um, it was a great like half-hour horror stories where every episode was a different story. So I suppose it was a bit like you know Outer Limits or you know Twilight Zone or Rod Serling's Night Gallery and that kind of idea. Although it didn't necessarily have a linking person, although some of the stories did link together. But I loved the series, and so I'd got talking with the guys that produced and wrote it, and we came up with this idea of doing a tie-in book. And so that tie-in book was coming along, and um, once again, it was easier to do that through a company than it was through an individual for kind of protection purposes because we had to make certain you know assertions as to levels of insurance we had and all sorts of nonsense um in order to do the book so we did the urban gothic book through um telos as well and in fact i think the urban gothic book was the first book that telos actually published it happened to come out first because the novellas the doctor novellas took a lot longer gestation to actually get the first ones out and i think the first ones weren't out until 2000 or something when Kim Newman's Time and Relative came out and that was kind of really where Telos started so um, we started publishing the novellas once a quarter we were then doing some horror fiction and horror novellas and things like that which we loved and then we started to expand out to do other kinds of guides to other series um, you know realizing that the Doctor Who license wasn't going to last forever in fact it only lasted for about three years which which was really disappointing and in, and in fact it was when we published Ghost Ship which was the fourth book it was when we published the fourth book that the BBC told us that they weren't going to renew the license for us um, which is, as it goes another story in and of itself 
So again, we realized that if we wanted to keep Telos going, we had to publish other stuff. So again, we, we continued just trying to find other properties, other things to do. We did the Time Hunter books, which kind of followed on from the Doctor Who range. And it's just kind of continued from there, really, um, publishing the sorts of books we like to read, the sorts of books we love, factual guides to television shows, film and television. We've published a lot of horror fiction, fantasy fiction. We've dabbled with science fiction. We've got romance there now. We've got some self-help guides. We've even got some erotica, of all things. Goodness sakes. Um, heavens to Betsy. Um, I'll have to order that on my other credit card. <laughs> I would order that on your other credit card. It's very, very good erotica. I, I, I to you know, we pride ourselves that everything we publish is done to the same quality. We want the, the writing, the editing, the books, the covers, everything to be of a quality that says if you buy a Telos book, you know you're going to get something good, mm. you know, no matter what genre or whatever it is that, that, that we're doing. And, you know, we hope that continues to this day um, and beyond because um, that's kind of one of the driving principles behind what we try and do. Absolutely, and uh, just looking at uh, some of the horror fiction, I, I note that you've you've published books and worked with authors, you know, horror luminaries such as Graham Masterton or Simon Clarke, Stephen Gallagher, Christopher Fowler is a particular favourite of mine. So yeah. it says a lot that authors of that quality are prepared to work with you and and with Telos to get their work out to the public. Absolutely, it's it's a great compliment to us, um, and and of course we we love those authors' work, which is. Know why we're so glad that they're, they're working with us and of course we like to think that not not only the names that you recognize but the ones by the authors you don't recognize are actually as good as you know the ones by the names that you recognize it's lovely to just get great fiction out there you know stuff that makes people think and you know go oh my god i wasn't expecting that you know um even if it's just a novella even if it's just a short book it's, it's lovely to try and get stuff out there and as you say i mean being able to publish stuff by graham is is just awesome because graham is one of the most awesome horror writers you know of his generation still writing today yes um you know he's an, he's an incredible writer lovely man and then people like um you know stephen laws where we, we did um you know one of his books spectre um is a, is a great novel and uh as you say, Simon Clark, The Fall is, is, a, is a fantastic kind of time travel novel. Very original, very different. Now, we, we've got some lovely, lovely books there, and we're very mm. proud of them. You know, and we hope um, we're going to continue with, you know, more and more surprises and, and big names and God knows what, you know, as, as time goes forward. I think uh, it was Graham Masters, and I picked up a copy, a battered, pulpish copy of his uh, The Wells of Hell, which you, you have reprinted <laughs> through Telos, which yes. uh, back in 1990 was my first exposure, that and The Devils of D-Day. They're short, but they're just fantastic. They're, 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 they're propulsive and they're, they're scary and they're, they're just sort of, you know, they're, they're very gripping, aren't they? Absolutely. And they're also very of their time. They're, 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 yes. they're definitely an 80s sensibility to them, um, which oh. I love as well. Because um, I, I, I loved all of those kind of paperbacks that came out in the 80s that we just don't get these days. No. There's almost, almost a feeling that these days everything has to have a unique selling point. Everything has to be a bit highbrow. Everything has to be a bit, a bit, a bit. And it's like, what's wrong with just a good old-fashioned pulp horror novel? You know, come on. And I, I kind of, I used, I used to love um, James Herbert's work for exactly that reason. Yes. Is that you pick up a Jim Herbert book and you knew you were in for a great ride, a great story, some good scares, some icky bits. You know, and you know, you knew it wasn't going to be pretentious. You, you knew it wasn't going to try and be too clever. And that's not trying to, you know, denigrate Jim because I loved his work. Such a shame he's no longer with us because exactly. he was unique. And, and and that's why every single one of his books, you know, went top ten, number one, because they touched that public sensibility for just a good old-fashioned horror yarn, you know. And and he did that superbly. 
Um, and it's a shame, really, that there doesn't seem to be anybody else around who does that. Um, a lot of the other writers, I said, they're trying to be too clever, I think. You know, there's, there, there is a knack and an art to doing a good old-fashioned horror novel. Um, and, I, and I think they're kind of a few and far between these days, which is a great shame. So it, it is lovely. It is lovely that Telos can bring some of these these old classics back into print and and, and let people kind of experience the joy that is oh. the kind of the pulp horror novel again. You've published a book of your own short horror fiction, is that right, David? I did. Yes, called Tail Spinning. Um, I've I've not written an awful lot of uh, short fiction, mainly because I don't have time. Mm. Um, mainly because I've obviously done an awful lot of nonfiction and, and other writing. Uh, and also, I tend not to write for myself. Uh, I, I write when I'm asked to write. So it's when I've had commissions, when people have asked me to actually contribute something, is when I've written horror fiction. So, um, yeah, I just decided to really collect all the bit, or most of the bits and bobs that I had into one book um, called Tail Spinning. Um, it's available from Telos, and I think it's on Kindle and et cetera as well. Um, and, yeah, so, so that's kind of like a selection of my horror stories there's a couple of doctor who tales in there as well that i was quite proud of um and um and yeah so i would say to me but that's probably all, all the horror fiction i've written all the fiction i've written in the last 30 years mm. um uh, in fact uh, i've done a couple more over the last couple of years so i've got about maybe three or four other stories now that i could use somewhere um they've been written for various anthologies and things that i've been asked to do um, which is lovely. I mean, you, you know what it's like, Robert. When someone comes and asks you, will, will you will you submit something? It's lovely. <laughs> David, I dream that that day will come. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, it, it it's lovely. I I noted just looking at your profile on on Wikipedia that you were involved with the British Fantasy Society, and I had a story published through them a, a couple of years ago. So, That's it, right, it, yeah, that's the one I saw. Yeah. Yeah, so it is. Uh, it's lovely to have their recognition, and it's um yeah, you know, it's and it's it's. I'm glad to hear. The, the the keenness, the fervour in your voice about the genre because sometimes yeah. it feels like horror is the idiot stepchild of uh, of fantasy um, when really it, it, it does have a lot to offer um, just the general reading public, but uh, there you go. Well, absolutely. And again, I think that's what Telos is all about and that's what we're trying to do. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I'd recommend um, Sam Stone's books. That's my, my wife. Um, mm. She writes a brilliant horror Um and we've got a series of vampire novels of hers on, on Telos, and as well as steampunk adventure, time travel, demon slaying novels, um, which are great fun. And then we've got a series by um, Helen McCabe and the Piper Trilogy, where the third book of that's coming out this year. And that's a great book, all based on legends of the Pied Piper and you know children going missing and stuff like that. And again, very different kind of sort of horror vibe to it but hopefully you know great read that drags you through and drags you along and makes you want to read more and everything that you know good sort of fantastic fiction should do and then that's what i hope we're, we're kind of presenting um mm. you know is, is good fiction um that, that hopefully people will have a look on telos and and try some i mean obviously they're they're pretty much all available on kindle and, and e-formats e these days, so that so they're cheaper than the paperbacks, you know. So, you know, I'd just say give them a try. You know, if, if you don't like them, well, you don't like them, but, you know, you might find you do, and then uh, there's lots more to explore if you do. So absolutely, um, it's lovely when that happens. Please make sure you buy anything Telos-related from the publisher themselves. Yeah, the difficulty there is the shipping, of course, but we're always very grateful when people buy from us direct um, because all of the money then obviously comes to us to, to help you know, keep the publishers going, help us get more books, and so on and so on. But honestly, we're, we're happy wherever people buy them. So if you can find them on Amazon, if you can find them on Kindle, Kobo, Nook, 
you know, your favourite bookstore, whatever, wherever you can find them, we're happy because obviously we appreciate, particularly, you know, you guys being in Australia, the shipping from the UK can be a bit ouch. Not a lot we can do about that. I'm no, afraid. that's no. right. David, um, before we let you go, we'll give you the opportunity to plug the sites. How can people get in contact with you? How can people order from Telos? Give us all the details. Okay, so um, Telos Publishing is um, www.telos, that's T-E-L-O-S dot co dot U-K. So that's the website. Um, you can have a look there. Um, my own website is uh, www.howeswho, that's H-O-W-E-S-W-H-O dot co dot U-K. And on How's Who, you'll find all sorts of my scribblings and writings and reviews of all sorts of things. I've just put up a piece all about the behind the scenes making of the Target book, the new edition. I just reviewed um, Jessica Jones, the TV series on there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's reviews of all sorts of stuff that, that crosses my path. And uh, for those of uh, those listeners out there who are keen to get a copy of the second edition of, uh, of the Target book, um, I think the podcast will be going out in the next week. So when uh, when can people avail themselves of it? Well, it's available now, again, from the Telos website. As I say, I apologise in advance for the shipping. <laughs> um, I, I don't know where else in Australia might have it. I mean, I really don't know. Sometimes the book depository um, gets copies in. As you know, that's probably, that is owned by Amazon. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they have copies of books, but I know that they're a law unto themselves. I have no clue whether they're going to, you know, offer this one. Mm. Um so, uh, yeah, but it is, it is available now. We have lots of copies here. Um, everyone ordered direct from Telos uh, will be signed by myself. So there's a little, little benefit from ordering from Telos. I hope people enjoy it. I hope people, you know, go out, buy it, and then talk about it, mention it, review it, you know, tell everybody. Because as people, as you guys probably know, Facebook does its best to be a social media that does not socialize any information at all. <laughs> yes. It's uh, really quite crazy. Yes. <laughs> To wrap it up, uh, I, and I know Mark would as well, uh, as being owners of the first edition, would urge anyone out there who doesn't have a copy, the book uh, in its first edition and no doubt in its second edition is a magnificent creation, a, a wonderful look back at uh, a, a key aspect of, uh, of watching Doctor Who uh, in the 70s and 80s and, and, and being a fan then. So, look, my hat's off to you, David. It's a fantastic book and I hope it sells like hotcakes. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, David. As I look at my bookshelf, I've got many uh, Telos tomes that uh, take pride and place on my collections. It's been an absolute treat to talk to you today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Take care. Thank you. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42todoomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42todoomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42todoomsday. Please check out our blog, 42todoomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. in front of ABC TV, there's every chance that uh, that music could creep into your early morning REM sleep and you could find yourself confronted in your dream time by Cybermen, Daleks and a well-travelled Time Lord in a stolen police box. 
That's because uh, 30 years after its inception, the legendary series Doctor Who is still haunting TV channels the world over. In our case, uh, sometimes 4.30 in the morning through this week as well, we uh, um, have ABC TV running the first episodes of Doctor Who in the more approachable time slot of 6 o'clock in the evening. It was on this day in 1963 that Doctor Who began its long climb to celebrate one of the most successful sci-fi TV series ever. And to celebrate the 30th birthday, we see the release of Time Frame, which is a book which delivers a comprehensive history and pictorial documentary of all things Doctor Who, covering all 26 television series, as well as everything um, well that's imaginable as far as a spin-off, including films, books, and other paraphernalia. The author is uh, David J. Howe, who has been been immersed in the world of Time Lords and the TARDIS for, for 20 years or more. He was part of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in the 1980s. He co-edited the Doctor Who fan magazine, The Frame, and has co-authored uh, numerous other Doctor Who manuals. Uh, and he joins me online from London uh, this evening or uh, this afternoon for him. Uh, good evening, David. Good afternoon, evening, morning. <laughs> <laughs> Very confusing. Whichever it is. Very confusing on the other side of the world. I know it's said of a most long-running TV series, but is it true that Doctor Who was proposed to run only for about six weeks? Yeah, that's more or less right, yeah. Um, the problem was that nobody at the BBC at the time really had any conception as to how popular the series was actually going to end up being. So the way that they tend to organize the, themselves is they'll you know they'll sort of arrange for a, a few episodes to be done first of all mm. um, and then if it's sort of received well follow it up with um, with a whole load more um, and that's what happened in Doctor Who's case yeah. what's your first memory of Doctor Who well my earliest memories of Doctor Who um, are of Cybermen with white gunk spurting out of their fronts <laughs> and uh, the doctor now, I know, I know which story this is from, but it's the, it's the Doctor sort of looking out over the edge of a cliff down at um, a Dalek city and sort of seeing the Dalek city sort of exploding and burning and stuff like that yeah. below him. And those are my two earliest memories, and they're from around sort of 1967. Have you managed to see the first episodes uh, that the Beeb produced? Mm, yes, well, I mean, um, an awful lot now have been released on um, commercial video um, over here. I, I don't know, I think they're released in Australia as well. But they I'm have been, sure yes, for sure. The same number have. I, I'm just wondering whether um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, some of the episodes uh, in the 26 series, I believe, had been lost at some stage, but uh, many have turned up in the, in the strangest of places. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, in the mid-70s, the BBC went through um, a sort of a, a clear-out-the-archives type um, sort of exercise, and a lot of the tapes were actually sort of thrown away and the film prints destroyed. Um, but yeah, as you say, since then, they've turned up in Hong Kong and Nigeria and uh, various various places. I mean, I, I even believe a couple of um, the colour episodes were returned from Australia because the BBC didn't have sort of colour copies of those. Yeah, it's amazing history. Also, uh, I notice there's an impressive array of artwork, ephemera, uh, newspaper clippings. Almost everything imaginable has been included in the book. Where did it all come from? Well, um, most of the material in the book comes from my own collection. Um, I mean, what, what happened was that I was discussing with the publishers of Virgin Books last year, it would have been, mm. um, about doing something for the 30th anniversary. And we came up with the idea that as Doctor Who's a television programme, and a television programme's primarily um, concerned with pictures, we'd present a, a sort of an illustrated history, a visual history, because that, that hadn't been done before, amazingly enough. So I went away and sort of like raided the deepest, darkest recesses of my filing cabinets and scrapbooks and all, all of the stuff that I've sort of collected over the last 20 years. Um, raided a few other friends' um, sort of 
junk drawers as well, um, and put together basically what became Time Frame. As a sort of, as you say, this in incredible, diverse and eclectic range of photographs from the series and photographs and pictures of the merchandise and the toys and the cinema posters and old Radio Times, which is the uh, television listings magazine over here, yes. uh, and, and the artwork from the Target book covers. Um, <laughs> everything you can think of, we tried to include. Time frame, as well as celebrating the 30th anniversary of the TV series, also heralds the 20th birthday of the Doctor Who publishing, which apparently has been uh, a stream of about 150 novelizations. I understand these are still in print, and I guess uh, they've outlived the TV series. Uh, there are no plans for more Doctor Who series, are there? On television, there's, mm. there's nothing that we've heard at the moment. I mean, what, what's quite amusing in all this is that um, Virgin started to publish uh, a series of books called Doctor Who, The New Adventures. Um, which I think are available down there as well. Um, and there's actually been more stories in that with Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor than, than he had on television. So <laughs> it starts to sort of like almost overtake the television series. Yeah. But no, the, the BBC are still keeping very, very quiet and very, very storm about exactly what they're going to do, if anything. And it's just all very frustrating. Um, I mean, this, this year, I mean, the 30th anniversary, there is... I mean, again, I, I can only speak for this country, but we, we've got one of our very rare repeats on television at the moment. Um, we, we don't have it that often. Um, and we've got a documentary. There's been stuff on radio. It's, it's on the cover of the Listings magazine again this week, the first time in 10 years that Doctor Who's been on the cover. I mean, there's so much going on. I mean, we've got everything but the programme actually being produced. It's, it's very, very strange. How many fans of the show would you say that there would be worldwide, or, or is it impossible to calculate? I, I know the series was shown in many, many countries, more than 70, somebody was saying. Mm, yes, it's, it's been shown all over the world at different, different times. Um, it's, it's almost impossible to calculate. I mean, it depends what you define as being a fan. Um, I mean, they can range from, you know, your hardcore sort of fan who will buy everything and attend every convention and that, that sort of fan, down to somebody who just quite likes the program and, you know, enjoys reading about it and likes reading the novels, maybe. Um, I mean, we must be talking millions. We've got to be talking millions of fans of The Doctor worldwide. The Daleks, uh, those lovable uh, steel-encased mm. mutants who were the Doctor's <laughs> first alien adversaries, uh, have almost had a career by themselves. Do, do you think Doctor Who could have uh, made it past the very first season without uh, the Daleks' hindrance, do you think? That's, that's a very good question. I've not been asked that one before. Well done. Um, I, th I think if the Daleks hadn't come along, Doctor Who would probably have lasted maybe a couple of years and then died a death. Um, I mean, the initial premise of the series was that it would mix historical stories, i.e. going back in Earth's past, um, with the science fiction-based stories. And when the Daleks appeared in the second adventure, um, the popularity of them was so great that it actually caused the production office to sort of sit up and think and reassess exactly, you know, where their emphasis lie and, um, and how to actually sort of progress it in the future. And certainly as a result of the Daleks, at least one story idea was sort of scratched that they had been working on because it didn't sort of fit with the, with the direction as they now saw it. So I, th I think if the Daleks hadn't come along, um, then as, uh, Doctor Who probably wouldn't be with us today and would be remembered in, in a similar way to sort of other things like the Quatermass series of the, of the 50s that the BBC did, you know, with a lot of affection, but by no means the, you know, the great cult following that uh, the Doctor Who's got. Indeed, I, I think, uh, to my way of thinking anyway, the dialects remain a, a sentimental favourite, uh, over and above the Silurians, mm. the Cybermen, the Sea Devils, uh, uh, you know, they... Well, uh, you know, just have something special about them. Uh, a lot of kids have the toy of the dialects, too. Uh, you know, they, they, they have become a popular piece of uh, uh, child memorabilia. 
Mm. Well, the Dalek is, is, is a strange beast because, it, it, in my mind, it falls into the same sort of bracket as things like the Coca-Cola bottle. And um, sort of that, that sort of, it's a, it's a big, it's instantly recognisable, uh, yeah? I mean, you can, you can see that shape even in silhouette or shadow or, you know, scrawled on a pavement or whatever, and you yeah. know it's a Dalek. I mean, there's never any doubt. Um, it's an absolutely classic design from um, the BBC designer Ray Cusick, who actually designed the thing. Um, and it's lasted, and that, that is the whole part of its appeal, I think, is that it, at the time, was so different and so original, um, and the voice was very mimicable, you know, sort of kids, all, all you have to do is put a cardboard box on your head, stick your arms out and go, exterminate, in that sort of Dalek-y way, um, and you're a Dalek. And yeah. I, that, that's, I think it's just, it's very difficult to sort of say why something like that would succeed where other things wouldn't. Yeah. But it's, it was just a, the right combination in the right time creating what, you know, has become virtually a worldwide symbol of evil, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> David, oh, heavy stuff. David, what about the TARDIS? Uh, obviously, we have to mention it. Uh, the Doctor's intergalactic uh, Cadillac, I mm. guess. Which was Did you mention I was sitting in one here? Or <laughs> I hadn't, but... Uh, it seems uh, a bit like it, I must admit. Yeah. Except this one's smaller on the inside than the outside. <laughs> it's dimensionally unstable here. Well, it's uh, obviously, uh, for those who uh, don't remember, a 1950s-style British Bobby-type phone box. Uh, did the TARDIS ever get a facelift, or, or did it last, uh, you know, or inviolate for 26 series? Almost inviolate. Well, it was in blue, really, but <laughs> almost inviolate. Um... I mean, in the... Now, when would it have been? 86-ish. Um, the producer, John Nathan Turner, sort of had a, had a brief sort of brush with changing the shape of the TARDIS um, in one story called uh, Attack of the Cybermen, where it became a sort of a gateway and I think a, a pipe organ at one point and a big cupboard and various sort of assorted things. But after that, I think it probably just decided it liked being a police box and sort of went back to that shape. But no, I mean, the, the, the idea of the police box, um, I mean, originally was that the TARDIS was supposed to blend in to match whatever it was in its surroundings. And as you say, in, in 1963 London, these things are on all the street corners and everything, but got superseded by the police's walkie-talkies, uh, so they knocked them all down. Um, I mean, I was having an interesting discussion with a friend the other, the other week, sort of um, what would the TARDIS look like if it appeared in London or Brisbane or Sydney today? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what would be a perfectly commonplace piece of furniture or item that you wouldn't give a second glance to. And it's actually quite difficult to come up with something. <laughs> yes, too true. Now, we, we thought a parked car, maybe. It's <laughs> about the only thing that you see absolutely everywhere and don't give a second glance to. True, true. Uh, obviously the parking tickets. Yeah, well, obviously a series that, uh, <laughs> that ran for seven, uh, well, uh, I guess seven regenerations. Um, there was a different attitude to fans, to the various doctors. And uh, apparently uh, Sylvester was uh, not one of the more popular uh, doctors. Uh, who, who were the uh, ones that people remember the most? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, th I mean, this was put to me the other day, and looking back through some early editions of the, um, the Listings magazine, Radio Times, when Patrick Troughton took over, there was um, a couple of letters in there saying, um, who is this clown? You know, we're never going to watch Doctor Who. You've ruined it. It's all got too silly. You know, we don't like this Patrick Troughton. You know, bring back Billy Hartnell. Um, so I think any change of a lead character is going to generate some letters from people who prefers the other one. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Um, that's not to say that one is any better or worse than the others. I think each of the actors that have played the Doctor have, have brought different aspects of his persona, if you like, to the forefront. Uh, and of course, injected a large sort of part of themselves into the part as well. 
Um, I mean, Tom Baker lasted the longest. I mean, he played the Doctor for seven years. So he tends to be the one that sticks in people's minds because he was there for a long, long time. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think each Doctor has his fans um, who, who like that particular Doctor. And it tends to be the one that you grew up with. Um, I mean, there's a lot of young kids today who sort of like really like Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. They mm. find him quirky and different and, mm. you know, uh, sort of entertaining. And, and that's, that's everything that he should be. So I, I don't think there's really any one that's more popular than others. You'll find different age groups, different reasons they'll have their favourites. David, is there still a, a thriving fan club? From all that you tell me, it sounds like it's still booming. Mm, it is very much so. I mean, the videos that are being released over here have the fan club's address on in this country, and that's generated quite a lot of interest for them. Um, a lot of conventions? I mean, they've got some... I'm sorry? A lot of conventions? There's a, there are a lot of conventions, yes. I mean, we had a very big um, 30th anniversary convention over here um, beginning of September, which there was about two to 3,000 people turned up for that. So that was extraordinary. And there's a lot of smaller conventions all dotted around the country all the time. Um, I mean, most of the doctors and companions are out in America at the moment, celebrating in um, Chicago, <laughs> 30th anniversary conventions and stuff going on over there. Uh, and I'm sure there's conventions going on in Australia as well and New Zealand. I'm uh, I mean, right. yes, it's, it's worldwide. I mean, th there's celebrations virtually every weekend. You could probably go to a Doctor Who convention somewhere in the world. David, uh, congratulations on the book. It's uh, really a wonderful um, illustrated history of, uh, of the you. series that has really uh, touched the hearts of many, many people. And uh, regardless of which doctor you support, uh, they're all in there and they're all uh, treated fairly lovingly uh, by a person who... Uh, I mean, uh, do you like other TV series or are you a total devotee? No, I love other TV series. I mean, I, I love Quantum Leap. That's great. I mean, I quite like Star Trek, although I'm not that keen on Star Trek. But I, I like Lo Lost in Space was a big favourite of mine. I think that was great. Something called Sapphire and Steel. Did you ever get that? Mm, don't recall David Sapphire and Steel too well. But... Lumley. All, all those telefantasy series, Ace of Wands, Tomorrow People. I mean, this is all sort of you know, British childhood series here. You've probably got your own versions. But no, I mean, I, I love the fantastic. I love... Um, films and television series and I mean I'm, I'm as interested in, in how they're all put together and, and made and realized as I am in the series themselves yeah I mean that's like the researcher in me coming out if you like but uh, no I've got, I've got a lot of fondness for a lot of series but I mean I think Doctor Who would always hold that sort of special place because it was the first it was the first one that I watched it was the one that really got me hooked into all of this um, sort of appreciation of the fantastic if you like um, and it was just a, a, a damn fine series, to coin a phrase. Well, it's uniquely timed for a great Christmas present if uh, friends or uh, relatives happen to be uh, huge fans of Doctor Who. It's called Time Frame, the illustrated history of the Doctor Who series. Uh, David Howe, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. David Howe from London.